This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. And we are back with another episode of Art of Darkness, the podcast about the dark side of creativity. I am Brad Kelly. This is Kevin Kautzman. Uh, hi, Kevin. How are you? How are you doing? Howdy. I got a new studio. I'm very excited. Studio. Yeah. And we are we are coming at you in our in our usual setup, except for that. The last time Brad and I spoke was for Patreon only. Yeah. And that and it was on. It was live. We were from, it was coming live. from the woods. Yeah. We did it live. We, we did it in the woods. That was before the werewolf attack. Um, so <laughs> it's it was during our happened. annual corporate retreat yeah, slash right. trust exercise that yeah. we do. The entire yeah. thing is a trust exercise yes. and we're constantly yes. falling into each other's arms, letting the other guy slip, <laughs> trying not to get into car accidents. Uh, hey, the, you know, oh, you want to make sure to, you want them to trust you, but not too much, you know, right. so you got to keep yeah. it a perfect balance. Yeah. We got to keep each other sharp for the, for the foul <laughs> year of our Lord. 2023 is, is caring toward a conclusion and uh but but during that that trip that i took up to mm-hmm. the bradlands in northern yes. michigan we planned yeah. season four we did plan you can four. hear that discussion if you sign up for patreon at patreon.com slash art of dark pod this is a core episode we've got coming at you mm-hmm. today and we've mm-hmm. got another core episode uh queued up for yeah. tomorrow yeah so going hard to buckle yeah. up Art yeah. of Darkness coming in hot. Yeah. yeah, if you've been if you if you're subscribed to us and you should be subscribed to us on Spotify, YouTube, 
Apple, wherever you subscribe to podcasts, you may have thought, hey, these guys are usually drop episodes every 15 minutes. What's going on here? Well, hold on, because it's it's coming at you hot and heavy here in September. So that um, actually, listen, that dovetails into something I want to say and I want to get out of the way. The the yeah. subscriber numbers are hot. We're doing yeah. we're doing really, really well. Patreon also doing well could always be doing better. And I have a a call to action for folks. If you've smashed that subscribe button, if you've smashed that like button, if you've left a review on Spotify, if you've clicked that button that jams us into your feed in, in Spotify and you are a recurring listener, I am asking you to go over to Patreon, do the bare minimum, and subscribe there. If every single person who was subbed, who is subbed right now, thousands of people on Spotify, mm -hmm. if they were if they were to go over to Patreon and sign up, it would be lights out, good game, life changing for the pod. Mm, yeah. So if you think that this podcast is worth subbing to, if you have you know you're getting us in your ear, ear holes in a regular way. What is stopping you from going over to Patreon and doing it? I don't know. Is it is it the five dollars a month? I was thinking about this when I was hanging out with Brad in Northern Michigan. What what's five dollars a month now? That is one of those crummy iced coffees that you get at the gas station. Yeah, you can't We're, even get like a Starbucks frappuccino for that. You think. you you go to the gas station and you yeah. you go. Ooh, I'm going to try one of these iced coffees. Maybe they've figured the formula out. Maybe it's gotten better. Maybe I mean, it actually it, is worth $4.80 for a can with a little <laughs> siren and, and the crummy iced coffee in it. Yeah. And it's it, it's never satisfying. You're, you, you, you always regret it. Mm -hmm. You will not regret putting that, put that Starbucks iced coffee back and, and instead pull out your phone and subscribe to the best podcast about the dark side of creativity that exists and that will ever exist. Help yes. us make this show better. Yes. I, again, I'm trying to plant this seed into people's minds. If you're subscribing, you're getting something from not, for nothing. Consider the value of what you get here. Consider what we're doing for Patreon. Every, every new Patreon subscriber, a lot of good things come out of that. Brad and I get a little more slack. We yeah. get a little more headspace so we can think more about the pod. We yeah. want to do more cool things for Patreon. Mm -hmm. We already have the After Dark episodes. We already have the book club. We're thinking about other cool things we might start doing mm -hmm. for Patreon only. I would hope if we didn't do a damned thing for Patreon, it, out of the goodness of your heart, you mm -hmm. would think, I'm going to give these guys you know, five, 10 bucks a month just mm -hmm. for what they do. What we're about to drop on you here, you know, Brad's going to tease the what we're going to do here for the core episode in a minute. Uh, it's going to be what four or five? Who who knows how long yeah. we'll go? Yeah. And we do two of these on average a month, twenty four episodes a year. It's a lot, so consider you know value for value. What value do you get out of this podcast? It takes you five minutes to sign up at Patreon, and then you're done. You're supporting yeah. the pod. Brad and I are happy. The pod grows. The other thing that people people may not know this, this is kind of deep lore for Art of Darkness, mm -hmm. but every new Patreon subscriber who sticks with the pod, you, through the power of the inner tubes and internet magic, every new Patreon subscriber magically resolves an artist's mommy and or daddy issue 
Yeah. A living artist right now is having mommy or daddy issues. Yes. You go and you subscribe and they just get a little bit of karmic juice, yeah. a little bit of zhuzh. And, and, you know, maybe they, maybe they forgive their father for missing, for missing the dance recital. Maybe, maybe yeah. the soccer mom, you know, gone too soon, rest in peace. Yeah. They're able to find peace with her. Right. She didn't, right. she didn't support their, their Hunter S. Thompson <laughs> phase. She didn't yeah. understand. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's an artist out there whose heart is, is still kind of broken. If you go and subscribe to mm -hmm. Patreon, that you just put a little karmic energy out there and you help the living artists. We don't know how it works. It's very mysterious. No. no. Well, and, 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 you know, we're about to talk about Carlos Castaneda and we're about to talk about some real magic. And, you know, makes me think about something that Carlos Castaneda might ask a person is does your path is your path a path of the heart ah. and you know subscribing on Patreon that is the path that that at least that part of your path is a path with heart I would say I like that you were able to get in the subject that we're talking about <laughs> I'll stop harping on Patreon after I say one more thing there was a story that went around recently about the obscene amount of money that Spotify has spent on podcast studios, on fake podcasts that nobody listens to, <laughs> on Drek. And you know, and it, what is it? Is it money laundering? Is it blackmail? <laughs> is it a tax write-off? What are they doing? Nobody knows, right? right. right? We legitimately are a, a team of two mm -hmm. coming at you from St. Paul, Minnesota. Detroit, Michigan, and then we have the great Peniel Colada, uh, Colada, who does the the show art. That's it. That's it. Yeah. I mean, and and really, and then you are yeah. listeners. And even if you don't subscribe, we do love that you invite us into your homes, invite us into your your BDSM dungeons, you know, whatever, wherever you're listening to Art of Darkness, we genuinely appreciate it. But it's at a certain point, you got to flip the script and you got to put that that dollar value on it. Because that's, let, let's let's be real. That's This is how the world works. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you want five more years of Art of Darkness, 10 more years of Art of Darkness, you're going to have to put the money on the line, yeah. lay it out there, let us know you value it. And for those who do, we appreciate it. All right, let's get into Castaneda, yes. Brad. Yeah, well, well, we'll start with it. I mean, we'll start with the classic Art of Darkness question. Kevin, what do you know about Carlos Castaneda? I don't know a damn thing. I think he's an author, an American author. Yeah. And I recall from my time working in a used bookstore that he's woo-woo. Woo-woo, yes. wacky, wackadoodle, woo-woo, 60s, 70s. You don't get much more woo-woo than Carlos Castaneda. Counterculture, but never uh, really caught my eye. It was never okay. anything that I got into. And I am I'm prepared to be Castaneda pilled. Okay. I wanna I wanna go on a path of the heart, Brad. Yeah. And I, I'm really excited for what you're gonna bring to us on this core episode. And for those who are new to Art of Darkness, we always have new listeners. This is the heart of the show. This is the core of the show. Every month or so. Brad prepares a core episode, educates me, mm -hmm. and vice versa. I prepare an episode, educate Brad. Along the way, you get exposed to a, an artist who's been dead for at least a year. You get exposed to a dead artist who you probably ought to know. Mm -hmm. And we we have some laughs along the way. Mm -hmm. Oh, plus, don't forget, uh, you know, multiple two or three darkroom episodes 
every month yep. with some of the most interesting people floating around the internet you know fascinating conversations you know some of those episodes are quite popular um we've got a whole slate of them coming up so you're never going to be uh you're never going to run dry of, of our darkness content to listen to i don't think right and this is season three season yeah. four starts you know with the new year and yeah. we've had a hell of a lot of fun mm -hmm. but it also feels like we're just getting started yeah and that yeah. my friends is the sweet spot also, don't forget our, our Telegram chat is very mm -hmm. fun. If you want to get at us, if you want to chat with other uh, Art of Darkness fans, go to t.me slash Art of Dark Pod. Let's get into casting. Yeah. Brad. What do you got? Yeah. So let me just uh, let me just restart with a quote. This is um, I, I'm, I'm this is actually a quote from uh, Carlos Castaneda's most famous book, his first book, The Teachings of Don Juan. Go ahead. I think this is why I never got into him. Can you show the book for people who are on YouTube? Is that? Yeah, that's papyrus font, isn't it? Oh, I'm sure, but this isn't a this isn't a Carlos Castaneda's book. This is a book about him. Nevertheless, still, he's yes. he's kind of a, a papyrus adjacent sure. okay. type I, of a writer. I'm very I, I judgmental. Dispute, I I do I judge a book that. by its cover. Do you Fair have any enough. idea how much the the publishing industry spends on covers? Yeah, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> Quite a lot. Go on. Um, yeah. So let me just read this passage, and then I'll, I'll give you kind of I'll give. I'll, then we'll launch into the story. But I wanted to give us a flavor of what you might encounter reading some Carlos Castaneda. This is from his his first book, which we're going to see launched him into the stratosphere when this book came out. And here's a quote from it. Um, and this is a quote. The, the book is called "The Teachings of Don Juan." Don Juan. Who we're going to talk about a lot. Let's just say Don Juan is, gosh, how do you even phrase who Don Juan is without getting super deep into it? This is purportedly what I'm about to read isn't actually Carlos Castaneda's words. It's actually Don Juan's words. And this is going to get complicated, but we're going to go into all of it. So, <clears throat> quote, look at every path closely and deliberately. Try it as many times as you think necessary. This question is one that only a very old man asks. And that question is, for what are we searching? My benefactor told me about it once when I was young and my blood was too vigorous for me to understand it. Now I do understand it. I will tell you what it is. Does this path have a heart? All paths are the same. They lead nowhere. They are paths going through the bush or into the bush. In my own life, I could say I have traversed long, long paths, but I am not anywhere. My benefactor's question has meaning now. Does this path have a heart? If it does, the path is good. If it doesn't, it is of, a, of no use. Both, path, both paths lead nowhere, but one has a heart, the other doesn't. One makes for a joyful journey as long as you follow it. You are one with it. The other will make you curse your life. One makes you strong, the other weakens you. Okay, so one question I want you to be thinking about as you listen to this is, is Carlos Castaneda's path a path of the heart? It's an interesting question as we tell this story. Um, I, I can't overstate the influence of Carlos Castaneda. I, I don't think, I think it's easy in 2023 for us to sort of forget it. And we're going to understand why we have a sort of a cultural amnesia about Carlos Castaneda, but his influence is enormous. Uh, and I've just got a list of random people here. And some you might expect. Uh, Deepak Chopra, of course. Uh, Stuart Brand, the guy who started the whole uh, the whole Earth catalog. Sure. William wow. S. Burroughs mm -hmm. wrote about Castaneda a lot. 
John mm. Lennon in his final interview called Yoko Ono his Don Juan, which is a Carlos Castaneda reference. Countless guru type figures. But then other people you might not think of. Marvin Gaye believed in the idea of being an impeccable warrior, which is a Carlos Castaneda kind of meme. Uh, he had a huge influence on the director Federico Fellini. And we're going to tell the story in the after dark for Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash darkpod, about what happened to Fellini when he fell into Carlos Castaneda's world. It is a crazy story. Um, that's one of the things we're going to talk about in the after dark. Um, Tarkovsky, who we covered in a previous episode, desperately wanted to make a film about the teachings of Don Juan. Uh, the creator of The Sopranos, of all things, who uh, cites it as a, a major influence. Um, Deleuze and Guattari compared the teachings of Don Juan, that book I just read from, to uh, Nietzsche's Thus, uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Um, the founder of Google, Sergey Brin, cites Carlos Castaneda as a major influence. Rage Against the Machine cites what? Carlos Castaneda as a major influence. Um, and the list, uh, Bob Dylan said that Don Juan, from the teachings of Don Juan, brought in a new awareness slash life force and wielded it like a machete. Oliver Stone was so influenced by Castaneda that he named his production company Itzlan after Carlos Castaneda's third book, Journey to Itzlan. Is this the missing piece? Is this why I don't have a career? Like, what is going on here? Okay, I'm right. into this. It's into huge. This. And this is what All I'm right. saying. There's like this weird, like, you say Carlos Castaneda, people are like, what? And it's like, you might not know him, but literally some hero of yours knows knows this stuff for sure. Um, Makes me think about Gurdjieff, where the Gurdjieff influence is everywhere. And I uh, assume there's a thread. There is. There mm, absolutely, yeah. I'm glad you called that out. There, to there absolutely is. A, uh, there's a, a, an overlap. And Castaneda read Gurdjieff, no question about it. Um, he's, ah, we're getting into woo-woo cult territory. Yeah, yes, I love it. Yes, I love oh, it. For sure. Good. So there's no, there's no doubt about it. Whatever you think about Castaneda, whether you think this is all excuse me, all hogwash, all woo-woo nonsense. He is one of the most important figures in the New Age movement of the latter half of the 20th century. And even if you think the New Age movement is a bunch of, a bunch of crap, it has, its influence seeps into everything that happens right now. Right. Oh yeah. So, so yeah, this stuff, this stuff didn't go underground. It became the culture. It, it did. is yeah. the culture. Yeah. You've yeah. got the soccer mom I mentioned before, rest in peace. She mm -hmm. was she was manifesting all the way uh, until she she had the accident in the minivan. Yes. Right. She yes. was. Yes. Yeah, we're all influenced by this. This is the water we swim in now. A hundred percent. And if there's a Mount Rushmore of 20th century figures important to the New Age movement, Carlos Castaneda is on it. Let's um, go. Yeah. Now, uh, <laughs> he he also is now remembered by the people who remember him mostly as a fraud and a huckster. Okay. I see no problem with that. Me neither. No. <laughs> when in when in Rome. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I'm just yeah, what is it? Because I want to fit in dot gif. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Um just one last note before we launch into the story about the influence. These books of his sold 28 million copies. That's an ungodly sum of books. Like there's only a handful of people who sell that, that those kinds of numbers for sure. Like you're talking like Stephen King sells more than that, you know, but, but, you know, maybe 10 other people sell that many books. Um, so huge, 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 huge influence. So who the hell was this guy? Um, 
it's surprising how difficult it is or it was at one time to figure out who he was here is a um one of the first people who americans who knew him personally for a long time this is who she thought he was according to margaret runyon who would be uh who would be married to carlos uh carlos was born in italy on christmas day 1931 and was the product of an illicit union between a 16-year-old student at a Swiss, Swiss finishing school and a visiting Brazilian professor. Carlos was taken back to Sao Paulo by his maternal aunt to be raised, and at 15, he was expelled from a prestigious private school and spent the ensuing years traveling and studying art. Uh, during the Korean War, according to this narrative, uh, Carlos Castaneda served in U.S. Army intelligence, and he had a scar that nobody knows where it actually came from, for sure. He had a scar stretching from his abdomen to his groin. Now, there's no official records of him serving in the military in any capacity, but is nobody it, knows uh, what the scar came from. Is it Army intelligence? Isn't that an oxymoron? Whoa, I had to do it. Ding, 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 yeah. ding. Had to, yeah. had to go for the yeah. joke. Wait, he had a, right. so he had a, uh, a scar from, from where to where? From his groin, from his ab, somewhere in his abdomen to his groin. I imagine it being like his under his sternum all the way to his groin. Yikes! Um, and he would tell stories about how he got bayoneted and, and strung up, and hung from his feet when he was serving in either Korea or Spain. But he had all kinds of crazy stories about the different things that he had done. He was born, depending on who he talked to, he was born in Brazil, he was born in Peru, he was born in Argentina. He uh, he was a Hasidic Jew, which doesn't make any sense at all. He would just he told people all Flim kinds flam. of stories. Flim, Flim flam. flam man. Flim flammer. Flim flam man par excellence. Maybe the best Flim part, Flam. Best Flim, yeah. Flim Flam man. Now, um, so who was he actually? Okay. The nearest we can tell, and a lot of this work was done uh for a Time magazine article in the in the early 70s. Carlos Castaneda was born Carlos Cesar Salvador Arana Castaneda with a with the tilde over the end. He got rid of that later. Um, he was born on, on Christmas Day, 1925, uh, Cayamarca, Peru. His father, Cesar Arana uh, Burungare, was an Italian watchmaker and goldsmith with family in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Castaneda, in rare moment, moments of honesty, would talk about his father. Um, saying, quote, I despised my father beyond anything I could say. And at the same time, I loved him with a sadness that was unmatched. Um, uh, he did not like his father for a few reasons. One was his father never did the things he said he would do. And I want you to think about this later when we get into what Castaneda's ideas are about how you should live your life. He said his father never did the same things he said he would do. He was an intellectual, but he was a, a literary man who never wrote anything. Um, everything ran on schedule, but everything was mediocre and unworthy of note. Okay. So you just feel like I'm being subtweeted here. <laughs> um, Castaneda's mother, uh, Susanna Castaneda uh, Navoa, uh, we don't really know much about her at all, except that Castaneda says that he never liked her. Um, and hmm. that she he would always he, tell people that she died when he was six years old, which was not true. This is an artistic type of could have benefited could have benefited from some of that art of darkness karma that we have going yes, around. Yes. We, we need to. Yeah. See, this yeah. is why I talk about the mommy and the daddy issues. Yeah. This is fascinating because what year was he born? Uh, 1925. 
this is highly unusual for the subjects we cover. Typically, when you get into the 20th century, people are very well documented. Mm -hmm. I'm preparing to do Dante, and we're talking yeah. about the 13th and the 14th centuries. And there's yeah. a lot about Dante, but there's a lot we don't know. And right. that makes sense. Right. This, yeah. somebody willfully maybe hid things or confused things. And that, things yeah. or, and that okay. person hmm. was Castaneda. Okay. All right. <laughs> he did not want you to know his real deal. And we'll get into hmm. um, some... We'll get into how that actually fits into the philosophy he was espousing. Um, there is this weird thing where as you look at Castaneda's life, you think, man, he was plotting this from day one somehow. Like it was somehow you talk about manifesting. I'm not saying he was manifesting it, but like there is a sense of like a very long term plan being carried out that started maybe in like as a teenager, maybe. Um it's a very, very interesting. We don't know a ton about his childhood. There are some interviews with childhood friends of his. Um, and I guess there's an, a, a point where I can talk about some of my resources right now. Um, one resource, uh, if you want to get, um, if you want to dive a little bit deeper, it's worth checking out. Um, it's called, it's a podcast. It's a 12 part podcast about Castaneda called Trickster. Um, there's a lot of good interviews with people who knew him. It's worth, it's worth checking out. Um, a big resource for me is going to be this book, The Life and Teachings of Carlos Castaneda by a gentleman named William Patrick Patterson. It's quite good. Um, I'll have, of course, a couple of Carlos Castaneda's books that I'll be referencing. This short but interesting book called Shaman, The Mysterious Life and Impeccable Death of Carlos Castaneda by Mike Sager. Um, and then this book, which I can't wait to talk about more in depth, The Don Juan Papers by uh, Richard DeMille, who's actually the son of Cecil B. DeMille. Okay. Um, I'm ready for my close up. Yes, Don yes. Juan is yeah. ready for his close up. Go, <laughs> come on, Brad. You're you're directing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's Fun. talk about let's talk about what we do know about Carlos Castaneda's boy. Let's just see if we can get a sense of him as a boy to the extent that we can. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, he's uh, there's a story about going him going to the theater. He loved going to the movies and seeing American movies. Obviously, it's what you saw in the 30s and 40s is pretty much the only people are making movies were, were, was uh, either German movies or American movies. Um, so he would go to the theater um, and Brad, you uh, just pissed off a lot of people. But go on. You can get it in the 1930s. <laughs> yeah, you can find Brad manages the Twitter account, which yeah. is at Art of Dark Pod. Uh, we don't yeah. pretend to get everything correct, right. but uh, well, can, uh, we're very accessible. Just, Let's just say there wasn't a uh, a enormous Peruvian film industry in the 1930s. I understand what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, now there's this <laughs> there's this thing there's this thing that is really interesting, and it, it echoes something that a specific thing that happens later. And remember, Trickster, right? That's the name of the podcast about his life. There's this scene of him being a, ch a boy sitting up, sort of on the balcony in the movie theater, and he just decides that he's going to pee on the people below him. And the friend he's with is freaking out like they're kids. You're going to pee on somebody. They're going to come. They're going to I mean, they're going to beat us to death. Like you can't just. And and Carlos seemed even as a boy, completely un, unperturbed by the p potential consequences. And when the people came up and confronted him, he just said, I have no idea what you're talking about and managed to convince him that he didn't have anything to do with it. Right. Just just had a kind of thing where he could just look you straight in the eye tell you something that's clearly not true and you would just go 
Yeah, that's that sounds right. Okay, well, sorry uh, to bother you. And we'll this guy on. is gonna crush in the 1960s in the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and the then, kind of energy we yeah. need. That's that's the yeah. kind of energy that this country is built on. Yeah. I'm gonna piss in your face. Yeah, and tell you straight to your face. I'm not pissing in your face. Right, 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 right. There is a thing later. He, there's a thing later. <laughs> he, he has this friend, Larry Watson. Um, late, this is much later, but this is the this is the echo of that story. When they're adults, he's like thirty something years old. They're they're standing in a stairwell. He's standing in a stairwell talking to his friend, and he tells Larry, he's like, "I'm gonna spit on that guy down there." And Larry's what? like, dude, what, what are you doing? Why? He's like, just watch. And he spits on him. And like, and 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 he took some joy in the fact that he was going to be able to do that. And he would just be able to will himself out of the situation it's that happened. Tremendously after. disgusting, however. Right? It's, really it socio- absolutely. sociopathic oh, it's, behavior. It's, mm. it's, it's something like I couldn't imagine doing that to a random, right. like, it, it would. Yeah. Not only doing it, it, it even crossing your mind, really. Like, what are you? Sure. Yeah. Right. Very, Something's very not, strange. Yeah. Yeah. Now he had now, despite that kind of behavior, if he keeps, he had, if he keeps doing this, he's going to end up becoming a podcaster. He's right. got to be very careful. <laughs> it's no, like you're, you're watching your children for signs. They're going to become a serial killer. They're like, uh, you know, arson, right. pissing on people, podcasting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, we got to get this kid some help. He's down in the basement talking to his computer. He, just, a lot. he thinks he's talking to Joe Rogan. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with him. <laughs> now, despite this kind of behavior, he apparently had a lot of friends. He's because, and you'll see why he's extremely charismatic. We're talking about S tier charisma with this guy, and we'll see this come up like time and time again. Um, he went to the National Fine Arts School in Lima. He did want to be an artist early on. That seems to have been his intention. And friends recall them as witty, imaginative, and cheerful. One friend said he was, quote, a big liar and a great friend, uh, which I think is just an interesting an interesting description. Somebody to, somebody to remember you fondly, but also be like, yeah, he lied constantly. But I love the dude. Like, that's a... You know, it's, it's just yeah, interesting. Uh, oh, ima- so. Imagine him like in software sales in the 90s. <laughs> right. Would have made bang. Yeah, he would have. Yeah. Uh, get him into crypto yeah. now. Let's go. Yeah. We'll see. He made a, He managed to make a few bucks as it, mm. as it happened. Um, he, I kind of, uh, I simultaneously like and detest this person at the same time already. We're not even 30 minutes this is, in or whatever. This is, how, this is how I felt doing the whole episode. Just like sort of charm, almost charmed by him, but also like this seeing him as like an enemy in a, it's in a perfectly that's exactly how i feel about the 60s <laughs> right right yeah now um there are some suggestions of some other things that he did when he lived in peru apparently he probably made a time uh made he may have made a living for a while selling medicinal herbs in the market of Cayamarca. and just think about as we get into this story later what that um the the kind of education he might have gotten doing that and how it might have filled uh, filtered into what he did later um when he's 24 years old this is the official story even though he told everybody his mother died when he was six when he was 24 years old his mother died he was so stricken by grief that he locked himself up in his room for three days and basically when he came out he said i'm going to america Right. So this was a big demar- demarcation point in his life. His mother dying at the age of at the age of um, 20 when he was 24. Um, it took him a little while to actually get to America. But this was he started setting everything in motion at this point. Um, uh, Margaret Runyon, the woman that he would be married to, um, 
said that had this to say, quote, Carlos concluded that his attachment to his mother had been too strong. And the only way to avoid that in the future was to fight his notions of attachment and dependency. Okay, now think about as they tell this story, think about his relate his dependencies, his relationship to being dependent on other people. Um, like I said, it takes him two years before he actually takes off to America and he happens to leave a pregnant fiance behind in Peru and literally nothing is ever said about her again or the child. Um, womp, womp, womp. Yeah. Going to hell. Yeah. yeah. Not a good move. Not, not Don't great. love that. Then he gets to America. Oh, no. Oh, and he man. disappears from the public record for four years. No one has any idea what he was doing for four years the first literally liter, like it doesn't matter nobody has any idea you there's there's things he said he was doing but nobody actually knows no work records no anything uh, um, i was uh was working at the post office yeah, right? i uh i was a furniture yeah. salesman yeah. uh yeah i was in new so, orleans right Right. Who so knows? That kind of vibe. It could just be all kinds of things. And he would tell four years is a things. long time. It is a long Think time. about your own life and your own schedule. And we're talking about what? No proof of residence, no registration at, in a school. Yeah. Wow. Time, time Magazine had a team of people working on this and they couldn't figure it out. That's kind yeah. of awesome, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. This would be extraordinarily <laughs> difficult to do now. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, here, I'm going to give you a description um, of Castaneda in December of 1955. This is when he meets Margaret Runyon, the woman that he, he would be married to for a time. Um, quote, and she's describing Castaneda, quote, a short, dark man with black, curly hair that gathered in a dangling cluster of tiny curls at the forehead. His eyes were large and brown, and the left iris floated out a bit, giving the impression that one eye was always looking beyond you. It was a flaw that he sought to hide by squinting quizzically or looking away, which made him seem painfully shy. He was, he was not shy at all, but he had the look of a high countryman, short but slim with an ample chest, thin eyebrows, a broad and ingratiating smile, and the aqu- um, How do you say this word, Kevin? Aquiline? Aquiline. Aquiline? Okay, that's I think so. Yeah. Aqu- aquiline nose of one with more than a random share of Indian genes. Okay, so that's mm. a description of him. Now- he wouldn't get married to Margaret Runyon in 1960, and she's really the only source of pre-1960, post-Peru, post, um, pre-1960 information about Castaneda. All of it comes from his, the woman that he married, Margaret Runyon. Um, uh, he's living in Los Angeles. He is broke, dead broke, um, and he already is an enigma. Like he's not Carlos Castaneda, whose names are on books or anything. He's a flat, broke immigrant with no no expertise or prospects whatsoever. And even at that time, he was so enigmatic that he he drew people to him with like a gravity already. Right. Um, So just and, and, and this is the thing. Margaret wasn't uh, Margaret Runyon wasn't just some random woman. She was a powerhouse. She um she was 
intelligent. She was capable. She had been uh, she'd been almost married to the writer Louis L'Amour, the Western writer. She had huh. constant suitors all the time. She had um, worked her way up to being the ch- uh, chief telephone operator at Pacific Bell. Um, she, she'd been married to a she'd been she'd been engaged a number of times. Uh, she'd been married to some some poet who I don't have the name of. She'd been married to like a real estate tycoon. Um, she she <laughs> desperately did not want to be held down. And after her and Castaneda had like a little bit of a romance and he disappeared for six months, one day he shows up at her door. She's on a date with another guy in her apartment. He shows up at the door. She lets him in. He sizes up the other guy and he looks at Margaret and he says, we're getting married. And they promptly get in the car and drive to Tijuana and get married. Whoa. So, so yeah. So I just like the reason I tell the story is like, think about what kind of personality could make this happen right penetrating eyes an aquiline nose right. Uh, right. a foreign accent probably very intelligent mysterious mm-hmm. he's mm-hmm. and he knows all the pua pua tricks without ever having to read a forum right right he disappears for six months very strong neg comes right, back right we're getting married right like a like a magician a, a Svengali. he really a is flam, a flim flam man of the highest order he he really is and, and 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 this is the thing even people who would kind of come to despise him or whatever you know they would always kind of give him credit and they would say there's literally nobody better at reading a person than carlos castaneda oh wow like, the, he's he got new X-ray, laser vision. Yeah, two Mm. minutes and he would know your strengths and weaknesses and how to play them. You know, he he just he just knew. Um, And it gives me chills Mm. just thinking about that, because that's like a superpower that can be used for good or ill. Right. And we'll see how maybe it was used a little bit both ways. Why not both? (laughs) Right. Exactly. Um, Now, what else was he doing around this time, this pre-1960 era? He was... um, he was very, very interested in what was at the time a new cultural phenomena, which was uh, in the West anyway, which was psychedelic and plant based drugs. He read everything you could read on the subject. He read The Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley. He read um, a book that was, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, funded by the CIA by called The Sacred Mushroom by somebody, excuse me, somebody named uh, Andreja Puharik. Um, he read The Peyote Cult by Weston LeBar. And importantly, very important, and I want the audience to just remember this name if you don't already know it because it's going to come up later. He read um, the work on mushrooms by R. Gordon Wasson. Um, R. Gordon Wasson also features prominently in the Tim Leary episode that we did a while back. Um, now, with with Margaret Runyon, Castaneda gets entangled in this name. Hang tight here because I have to say, you combine yeah. the the x-ray vision soul vision superpower that brad described mm-hmm. with psychedelics yeah that is a recipe for epoch changing potential yeah yeah it's it's sort of like the only there's a little charlie manson vibe in there a little bit somewhat mm-hmm. right yeah that can break yeah. hard in yeah. any direction you might start a band Right, <laughs> right. You might have a band that's talented who takes some drugs and meets a guy like this, and then they go through the roof. They do something, right, right, epoch changing. We'll yes. be doing John Lennon at the end of the year Ooh, here. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's going to be great. Um, 
Okay, so he uh, six months after this marriage, they get married. I think they get married in 1960. I, yes, I said that. You get married in 1960. Um, six months later, um, Margaret Runyon says she wants a divorce. He's a little too. He's he's a little all over the place, right? And so all of the things that are that are sexy and appealing at first, it's cool when you. It's kind of cool early on if you disappear for a while and then show back up. But like when you're married, it's like, wait, dude, like. Somebody was doing, I had to do all the, di- like, where were you? Sure. You never call, you never write. It's a very different thing. Yeah. Um, now, he told her that he filed for a divorce because they got married in Mexico. He filed for divorce, but apparently he never did file for divorce until 1973. He just never got around to it. Um, here's another weird thing that happened. <laughs> I'm trying to think of him as like a D&D character, but for sort of modern American stats, right? This is like charisma, 20 plus, right? paperwork. Right. Zero. No rules for paperwork. Not doing it. <laughs> Watching paperwork all the time. Yeah. Do you know anybody like that, Brad? I've got people in my life who are zero paperwork people. Um, yeah, I don't have 20 plus charisma, but man, I might have one or two paperwork. I'm not good. <laughs> at, I'm, not, I'm not very good on that end either. Mm. <laughs> um, here's a weird, here's a thing, a major life event that happens with this Margaret Runyon marriage. So for some reason, and no, he never explained why, and nobody knows exactly why, Carlos already had a vasectomy when he met Margaret Runyon, and yet he wanted her to have his child, and so they recruited a friend of his to impregnate her, and then Carlos adopted the child. Oh, yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Oh, what? Yeah. So Well, I, that's not his child then, but he... No. He adopted. Okay. He, he his name is on the birth certificate. Carlos Castaneda's name is on as the, birth the father. As the father, but it's not. Did actually. his friend have a, an aquiline nose? I don't know. I, yeah, it's it's a good question. That now, is here's a the thing. Bizarro turn. It, it's very strange, right? And now you remember that physical description I gave you of Carlos. Very very dark. I mean, he's a he's a he's like half Peruvian, half Italian guy, right? So dark features. Um, the boy was like a little blonde haired boy. And he would take the kid around and be like, this is my son. And people would be like, "That's there's no way that's your son. <laughs> and again, it added to the layer of mystique that he had, right? That he'd have this little boy and be like, yes, this is my son. And then it forces people to kind of go, wait, how? Right? I'm yeah. going to get ahead of this a little bit. Yeah. I, I hope that child was not as fucked up as I imagine he ended up being. He's... He was okay, I would say. We're going to okay. talk a little bit more about him later. It's not totally fucked up, but it's not great. Either. We've had some characters. We've covered some characters on Art of Darkness who uh, were not the greatest parents in the world. Yeah. So, okay. He's uh, Castaneda's. He's not. Well, this is the thing. He's not um, uh, directly abusive. Okay. Right. So good. there's that. That's good. Um, yeah. And hey, look, good for you. By the way, you want to have an unconventional family arrangement. I think yeah. I think we're entitled to kind of step back a little and say sure. that's that's interesting. Sure. But also, do you? You want to yeah. have a surrogate? 
Go for yeah. it. I don't, yeah. I'm really not in a position to sit here and go, Whoa, what's wrong with you? Right. As long as as long as the child is the focus and you raise yeah. the child in a loving and considerate way. Yeah. So far, the yeah. leaving the fiance, the pregnant fiance in Peru is much bigger crime than than mm. what he's got going on with Margaret Runyon and this this child in America, for sure. Still, so yeah. uh, we, we got an oddball here. Yes. We got an well, unusual. We got a quirky dude. Yeah. And here's a, here's another thing, too. He had some kind of sexual hang up that. He never really talked about with Margaret and with these other women. And we're going to talk. There's a lot of women in Castaneda's life over time with Margaret and with some of the other ones. The only sexual contact they would have for months to begin with was him performing oral sex. And it's, you know, sorry, this is hard to process because I have the entirety of the Sopranos flashing through my brain (laughs) as you said that. (laughs) Right, Um, right. Yeah. Well, uh, so now I'm at that. Now I'm at the part where he, yeah, okay, the ducks, and then okay, now I'm fine. Now the therapist is is yeah. being assaulted. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. I know we we, had, we forget about the many saints of Newark. That never happened. Right. 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 Uh, many what okay. Of what? Yeah. The many once of yeah. yeah. Wait a minute. That what? Yeah. So again, I'm. I'm entitled to be a little baffled here. This is very unusual. Yes. Yes. There isn't anything about Castaneda's life that is normal at all. (laughs) I'm very curious. So Uh, he would, he would imagine he would, he would, maybe it was was his hangup or maybe it was part of his like long-term seductive plan, but he would, he would harness all of his charismatic powers to get a woman. And then all he would do is go down on them. And I mean, if that's your thing, that's your thing. But it does seem a little odd, right? It's sort of like, is it a, like a physiological problem? Like, what? Wh- why? Right? Um, it's not clear. It's never really yeah, explained. It, it seems like a joke without a punchline. Something like that. That's yeah. That's how I would describe that. Yeah. It, lady listeners of Art of Darkness, we know you're out there. Yeah. Yeah. If what you, would you, you think of you, that? I'm genuinely curious. Yeah. Uh, not to be puerile uh, or to, to solicit feedback we don't really want, but yeah. I am kind of curious, like at a certain point you'd have to, wouldn't that throw you off at a certain it, point? Yeah. I mean, after a couple times, it would be like, wait, but yeah, you would just want to know why, right? I, I think like, I would want it. I think I would want to know why. Right. Very yeah. strange. Hmm. Nobody knows. Nobody has the answer okay. to this question. Maybe Margaret hmm. Runyon did. I mean, um, maybe my let's let's be generous to this fellow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The scar, possibly. He could may be. could have been self-conscious about that. Could be. But remember, he also had a yeah. vasectomy for some reason that nobody he never explained. Hmm. As a fairly young man, I mean, in his early 30s, you know, and, and it's not like he'd had a bunch of kids and it was like time to shut, you know, shut the valve or something like maybe he was just giga based and he didn't want any of these women stealing his vril prematurely. He was gathering his vril so he could be more charismatic so he could achieve whatever the hell he was on his way to achieving. I don't know. I have a whole section of my notes that's sort of about that, but it's coming okay. later. We're going to get this is there. a. Yeah, Castaneda yeah. is a real, a real respecter. Yeah. He's okay. yeah. I don't know that he ever used that word, but if he mm. knew the concept, he'd like, been nodding his head. Yeah, Orgone, Wilhelm yes. Reich, that kind yeah. of territory. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, 
Now, another thing happens, a couple other things happen in 1960. This is when uh, he's married and when they have the boy, CJ would be his name. And and for a while, Castaneda is this boy's father. He does all the fatherly stuff, despite the fact that they're flat broke. You know, she's doing fairly well. So that that kind of excuse me, balances out the income. Another couple of things happen. He starts going to college, which we're going to talk about quite a bit. And he simply stops writing letters home. He had been writing letters home all the time and he just abruptly stops. He stops so inten- it, like delib- so abruptly that after a few years um, and, and he'd had weaved so many lies into his letters home that his family had no way to find out where he really was. They just assumed that he had died. So, um, yeah. So uh, this guy's now- like a little microcosm of what's going to happen in the sixties mm-hmm. to an entire generation of people. Yeah. Yeah. You move sure. from Dubuque to LA. Mm-hmm. You completely fall Change. off the map. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and now the just... other thing with his family mm. wouldn't have never called him Carlos Castaneda. They would have uh, called him Cesar Arana. That was his name in Peru. That was what everybody called him. That's what everybody remembered him as. When uh, a picture of him finally emerged, a public photo finally emerged. And there are very few photos of Carlos. Um, when a picture finally emerges and people saw it back in Peru, it was like, oh, that's Cesar Arana. Or Car- they'd be like, oh, this Carlos Castaneda guy looks exactly like our friend Cesar Arana. That's weird. Yeah, very, very interesting stuff. Now, 1960, as I said, he enrolls in, he starts going to school. He enrolls in an undergraduate course in ethnography um, with a man named Clement Mihan or Mahan. Um, and this is a guy who had practically built UCLA's anthropology department. Uh, in this undergraduate course, Mann says that if a student is an ethno, ethno, ethnography course, he says if you, uh, to his students, if you go out and interview an actual Indian, and I apologize for people out there if that's the word you think is offensive. I don't even know what to say anymore. He said, go out and interview an Indian. Come back. If you really did it, you'll get an automatic A in this course. And so Castaneda says, OK, I will do that. Um, his Castaneda wanted to go bigger. He didn't want just an A in the course, though. He wanted publication. It would seem that Castaneda's goal at this time was that he was going to rise to the top of this field, ethnography, anthropology, whatever we want to call it, as fast as a person possibly could. And this is the thing we have to remember. He's already 35 when he enrolls. As an, he's not 22 or not 18, right? So there's a sense of playing catch up here. It's like he finally figured out the missing piece of the plan, and that was to skyrocket to the top of the world of anthropology. That was the plan. <laughs> yeah, and somewhere an exclusively oral sex. Somehow these two things. <laughs> right. <laughs> at least he stopped pissing on people. Yes, yes, yes. So now he would turn in a, he would turn in a paper that very much impressed Clement Meon and that paper would become the template for his first book the teachings of don juan a yaki way of knowledge okay now we're going to talk about this book a little bit um it doesn't come out until 1968 but it is the capstone of this whole 1960 to 1968 period um and it's just important that we actually know get a sense of what this uh th- what this book is um it was uh, Castaneda's master's thesis was this book, um, and it was billed as, and it still is sold as nonfiction, which if you don't know anything about Castaneda, maybe that seems fine right now. But as we get through, that's going to seem very strange to you that you still buy this on the nonfiction shelf. Um, 
it's purportedly documents a five-year period that he spent studying uh, Yaqui sorcery in the Sonoran Desert and parts of Mexico with an old, quote, man of knowledge. The word he uses for man of knowledge is a Nahual, N-A-G-U-A-L. The experiences he describes apprenticing to this man, this Don, this guy, Don Juan Matis, uh, uh, the experiences with Jimson, excuse me, Jimson weed or Datura, peyote, and some kind of mushroom, um, along with the narrative about this young apprentice, Carlos Castaneda, learning the secrets of a universe of the of the universe. This book, at, when it came out in 1968, was almost instantaneously in the, in in the in the lifespan of a book a huge success. And as I said, it and its sequels would sell 28 million copies, right? So 1960, flat broke immigrant with an adopt a little adopted boy enrolls at UCLA 1968. He is the biggest deal in the field of anthropology in the in the country, right? Okay. Now, he was harnessing that vril for a reason. He had a master plan, and it involved UCLA and ethnography. I did not see this coming. Yes, very yes, unusual. Yes. Hmm. Now it is. This book is. It's a bit like an adventure story. Okay, so Carlos. It starts, and he meets Don Juan in a bus station, and there's sort of auspicious circumstances. And Carlos is very much positioning himself as sort of the fish out of water. Hey, I don't know anything about any of this stuff. You know. Um, uh, they first the Don Juan kind of takes him under his wing and, and gives him first Jimson weed, um, which if people are familiar with, this is a this is a legitimate plant out there in the world that you could do. And you probably shouldn't unless you really know what you're doing. And I say this as a person who's not necessarily that averse to doing that sort of thing. But like, don't play with this one unless you have you know, scoured the internet for every bit of information. And even then, I feel like um, Obi-Wan Kenobi, that is a name I've not heard in a very long time. Uh, Jim, yes. Jimson weed. And yeah. you know, where I know it from is Hunter S. Thompson. Oh yeah. About Jimson weed. Yeah. And I have no idea what it is or what it, it does. But. It's one of these plants. It's a detura. So it's a delirium. It's one of mm. these things you can take. And if you overdo it, you'll just wind up naked in a ditch somewhere and you won't know what happened for the last three days. You know, it's one of those kinds of drugs. Um, uh, the Jimson weed, which Don Juan doesn't like personally, um, his, his his Carlos Castaneda's mentor doesn't like Jimson weed, but but he needs he wants Carlos Castaneda to develop his own relationship with it. Um, also peyote, um, under the influence of which Castaneda meets a plant spirit creature of wisdom that they, that Don Juan calls mescalito. Um, and then under some kind, and then they work with some kind of uh, powdered mushroom blend that is smoked from Don Juan's pipe, after which Castaneda has the experience of becoming a crow and flying around. Okay. These are the main, these are some of the main sort of plot oh, points God. of the book, right? Right. Um, I've, I've written the bestseller. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Give me yes. all your money. Right. Give me your women. <laughs> <laughs> And you see the book, the version of the book I've got has the crow on the front. That's that that you'd have to imagine is Carlos Castaneda. Yo, people uh, ate this shit up in the 60s. They, loved it. they, they loved needed it. this. The church was they going did. through a crisis. When is the church not? Mm -hmm. I, everybody was having a like Vietnam was kind of in the air. You had the Beatles happening. 1968, man. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. Ooh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, here's some of the you other just, things that were just going see on some tonight. young young runaway from Nebraska in San Francisco yeah. in a sundress 
in right. some converted loft and right. you know and her her boyfriend strumming a guitar poorly over in the corner they haven't bathed in a week right she's right. got a copy of this cracked open oh well and yeah and this is people, it yeah and and if you if you're not super hip on like late like post-war american history this is what some other events that happened in 1968 the prague spring the tet offensive in vietnam MLK was assassinated. Worldwide student protests of Vietnam. RFK was assassinated. The Chicago, the famous Chicago Democratic Convention. Uh, Hair opens on Broadway, which actually was a big deal culturally. We forget that the, the Broadway, the Broadway show Hair. Uh, Andy Warhol was shot. The Black Panther Olympics protest. We orbited the moon. Not landed. We la- we purportedly landed on the next year. The Smithsonian has called the year 1968 quote the year that shattered America. And this book fit right in with what was going on. So um, now here's the thing about this book. The general consensus nowadays, and you'll you'll see some detractors. The general consensus nowadays that the is that the entire thing is a work of fiction. It's all bull. The based, whole thing based giga based. Don Juan, here's the general consensus. Just, just, it's Giga Chad, source. (laughs) I made it up. Right, right, right. I saw it in a dream. Right, right. Don Juan was the, 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 that's exactly right. The, The consensus is Don Juan didn't exist at all. There's not even a there's not even a guy. He Carlos may have like once or twice met like some old medicine man kind of figure, but never was under any kind of apprenticeship. It's not clear that Carlos Castaneda even ever did any of these drugs. There's there's what only rocks too is that this kind of person, the kind of person that forms their personality around a book like this, and then the yeah. pursuant threads that were to follow, doesn't give a damn whether it was real or not. That's yes, the beauty of it. That. That's part yeah. of the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. yeah. What does it matter, man? Right. It's reality right. anyway, man. Right. Right. It's right. that right. guy out there. Yeah, yeah. for sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, yeah, we're going to talk about that as we get in here, because I'm going to show you how it came down to be proved that it was bull. Right. But here's the important thing to remember. It was approved by the UCLA as a master's thesis. Not only that. His third book, Journey to Itzlan, was approved as a PhD dis- PhD dissertation, and that one was even more bullshit. So, um, so just think about that too. How how he managed to play all of academia at the same time. He wasn't just. It's one thing to play to 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 manipulate and convince some, like you said, some teenager in Nebraska who doesn't really wouldn't have any reason to second guess it. It's a book. It comes out from UCLA Press. It's on the nonfiction shelf. Like, I don't. Why is it? Why wouldn't it be true? Um, but to literally get a, a review in the anthropology uh, American Anthropology Review, like the premier magazine, I love this. Like, this is the most important book of anthropology of the year, maybe the century. Right? Like, I love it. <laughs> so Listen, good. you can't be peer reviewed if you have no peers. <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. So let's talk about, <laughs> that's right. Let's talk about some of the reasons. Um, uh, okay, we're going to talk about how he got away with it a little bit, but we also want to talk about why it caught on. I think we've I think we've kind of captured some of that. Um, but a couple other things to think about. Again, hippiedom was in 
total full swing. I mean, the LSD revolution with Tim Leary is happening simultaneous with this. Um, Castaneda claims that he met Tim Leary at one point and didn't like him. I, who knows if that even happened? Um, uh, but it's this is really not just hippie stuff because hippie is the whole sort of, you know, for whatever issues you have with hippiedom as a cultural movement its purported virtues were those of compassion and peacefulness right you can say that was all hypocrisy and all that's unworkable but that's what it was trying to be don juan is not a don juan and castanet are not pacifists this was about becoming an impeccable warrior this was about doing battle on this sort of the astral plane it was a thing about strength and power and violence it's 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 not quite it's it's the dark side of the hippie coin in some ways um so that's kind of interesting that that's happening at the same time wait you're telling me at all it wasn't all love and light no <laughs> the, the motorcycle gangs were hanging around the corner right, right. and all these people were waiting to get real estate yeah. licenses yeah. right got their own children out of the market <laughs> right. in the very near right. future you're telling me yeah. it was all bullshit brad is right. that what you're telling me I'm gonna have to go, uh, I, man. Yeah. I wish I could go relive my twenties right? knowing this now. Yeah, it would make it would it would, it would mm. cast a different light on those things now. Wouldn't Indeed. It? Yeah. Mm. Now, I am going to, as we do this, I am going to make a case that there is some. There's certainly interesting stuff in these books, and I think there are things that are probably valuable sort of ways of looking at things at times. Um, it's not particularly earth shattering, perhaps, um, and, and you know. If you're listening to this episode and, and you know you've listened to other Art of Darkness episodes, you know that primarily the people that we talk about are artists in a in in a though they may be extremely innovative, they're artists in a conventional sort of sense. They wrote a novel, they directed a film, they made some albums, right? They did those kinds of things. What I want to pose Carlos Castaneda as is think of him as one of the greatest performance artists of all time. And part of the performance is a series of books. Okay. Now, are there, is there anything to these books? I would argue there is some interesting stuff in here. Um, and I'm going to try to lay out some of the stuff that he's talking about. We're not going to go in depth. I mean, there's 12 books and I'm not going to, some of it's kind of repetitive too. So we're not going to rehash every single thing he wrote, but I want to give you a sense of the kinds of things he's trying to, he's trying to tell us, tell you, um, so I'm going to read a little bit from the teachings of Don Juan, just a bit that I think is kind of an interesting framework. Um, where did it go? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So the whole books, the, the entire books, the entire book is set up as a conversation mostly with between Don Juan and Carlos Castaneda interspersed with Carlos tripping on Datura peyote or mushrooms freaking rocks yeah this was wait this was his master's thesis this was his master's thesis yes oh, man we got to get back to this kind of thing we really do right, right. this is oh man yeah. this is when things were not didn't feel quite so locked yeah. down yeah yeah hmm. yeah so now here let me give you a little part on um uh let me see oh oh here let me start back here actually Sorry, this is an interesting bit of framework. And then I'm going to read some of the discourse about the actual drugs, which is interesting too. Um, <clears throat> quote, uh, in our conversations, Don Juan consistently used or referred to the phrase man of knowledge, but never explained what he meant by it. So I asked him about it. 
Don Juan said, a man of knowledge is one who has followed truthfully the hardships of learning. A man who has, without rushing or without faltering, gone as far as he can in, in unraveling the secrets of power and knowledge. Can anyone be a man of knowledge? No, not anyone. Then what must a man do to become a man of knowledge? He must challenge and defeat his four natural enemies. Will he be a man of knowledge after defeating these four enemies? Yes, a man can call himself a man of knowledge only if he is capable of defeating all four of them. Then can anybody who defeats these enemies be a man of knowledge? Anybody who defeats them becomes a man of knowledge. But are there any special requirements a man must fulfill before fighting with these enemies? No, anyone can be, try to become a man of knowledge. Very few men actually succeed. Okay, I, I said that part because think about how enticing that is to somebody out there who wants to change their life. Anybody can do it. All you have to do is defeat these four enemies, right? It sounds very masculine, too. The language is, is very fight. Fight. enemies. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, uh, this is a little bit later. <clears throat> when a man, quote, when a man starts to learn, he is never clear about his objectives. His purpose is faulty. His intent is vague. He hopes for reward, rewards that will never materialize, for he knows nothing of the hardships of learning. He slowly begins to learn bit by bit by, at first, then in big chunks, and his thoughts soon clash. What he learns is never what he pictured or imagined, and so he begins to be afraid. Learning is never what one expects. Every step of learning is a new task, and the fear the man is experience, experiencing begins to mount mercilessly, unyieldingly. His purpose becomes a battlefield, and thus he has stumbled upon the first of his natural enemies. Fear, a terrible enemy treacherous and difficult to overcome it remains concealed at every turn of the way prowling waiting and if the man terrified in its presence runs away his enemy will have put an end to his quest okay and then he talks about confronting fear and look yeah right i mean you might not become a yaki sorcerer but you do gotta get your fear figured out at some point folks right um okay that's what becoming an adult is yeah yeah it really is. Now, here's, mm -hmm. the, here's, here's the next one. <clears throat> Quote, once a man has vanquished fear, he is free from it for the rest of his life because instead of fear, he has acquired clarity, clarity of mind, which erases fear. By then, a man knows his desires. He knows how to satisfy these desires. He can anticipate the new steps of learning and a sharp clarity surrounds everything. The man feels that nothing is concealed. And thus, he has, he has encountered his second enemy, clarity. That clarity of mind, which is so hard to obtain, dispels fear, but it also binds. It forces the man never to doubt himself. It gives him the assurance he can do anything he pleases, for he sees clearly into everything. And he is courageous because he is clear, and he stops at nothing because he is clear. But all that is a mistake. It is like something incomplete. If the man yields to this make-believe power, he has, he has succumbed to his second enemy and will be patient when he should rush, and he will fumble with learning until he winds up incapable of learning anything more. Okay, and then a little bit later, what do you, what do, you do about this clarity? Quote, he must do what he did with fear. He must defy his clarity and use it only to see and wait patiently and measure carefully before taking new steps. He must think, above all, that his clarity is almost a mistake. And a moment will come when he will understand that his clarity was only a point before his eyes. And thus he will overcome his second enemy and will arrive at a position where nothing can harm him anymore. This will not be a mistake. It will not be only a point before his eyes. It will be true power. Right. Now, what is the next, what is the next enemy? Power. The, the, that's, now you're powerful. 
Now that's a, a great way to become corrupted spiritually, intellectually, psychologically, emotionally is to become powerful, right? So there's that. And then, there, then the final one is old age. So Don Juan steps him through. These are the enemies that you're going to have to confront. And then Carlos goes through confronting these throughout the books. Now, the question I want us to be thinking about, not Carlos in the book, but Carlos in real life, which of these did Carlos succumb to? I'm going to say that he did not succumb to fear. I think he got through fear. <laughs> um, but as we're listening, think about fear, clarity, power, old age. Which one Which one got him? I think it's an Man, this question. this guy landed in California in the 50s and the 60s. Mm-hmm. He got, he was right where he needed to be. Oh, yeah. At the right time. Oh, yeah. To pull off some monumental flim flam. I love <laughs> oh, yes. it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Now we get into talking about um, some of this. I want to give you a taste of some of the sort of drug stuff because this is largely what this book is about. It's about doing drugs and, you know, having experiences from it. Here's a, here's a bit about uh, Jim's and weed. <clears throat> Quote, this is Don Juan's words. <laughs> Don Juan, the fictional character created by Carlos Castaneda. We may get a little hate. I even got a little bit of pushback from some people on Twitter about the fact that Don Juan was real. Um, yeah, literally, there's no, there's no corroboration. The only person who ever said they met Carlos Ca- uh, Don Juan was Carlos Castaneda and a couple of his witches later. The witches show up later. Okay. Quote, you like flattery. He's talking to Carlos. And the devil's weed flatters you. Like a woman, she makes you feel good. The smoke, the smoke is the mushrooms. The smoke, on the other hand, is the most noble power. He has the purest heart. He does not entice men or make them prisoners, nor does he love or hate. All he does, all he requires is strength. The devil's weed also requires strength, but of a different kind. It is closer to being virile with women. On the other hand, the strength required by the smoke smoke is strength of the heart. You don't have that. But then again, very few men do have it. That is why I recommend that you learn more about the smoke. He reinforces the heart. He is not like the devil's weed full of passions, jealousies, and violence. The smoke is constant. You don't have to worry about forgetting something along the line. Okay. So that's just a little bit about kind of what these things are like. Now, it's not just drugs because purportedly Don Juan, and I should mention, um, his name is, according to Carlos Castaneda, Don Juan Matus. Now, he would at some time say that this was not actually his name and this is just what he called him. Um, but it should be noted that Carlos's favorite wine was Mattis wine, the same name. The name of the wine and the last name of his his purported mentor was the same. So there's a little bit Margaret Runyon sort of says he concocted Don Juan Mattis while drinking a bunch of Mattis wine. Right. This is like the end of uh, the usual suspects. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Don Juan. Yeah. <laughs> um, glug, 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 glug. Right. 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 Now, it's again, it's not just about the, the whole the, the whole path to becoming a, a man of knowledge it isn't just about doing drugs. There's a whole hierarchy of actions and different kinds of magic that Carlos Castaneda is supposed to learn. One of them, these things is really kind of strange. Um, you're supposed to capture these two lizards, right? You sew one's mouth shut. You sew the other one's eyes shut. And then you contemplate uh, something you want, need the answer to, to do a bit of divination. You put the, you put the, the blind lizard on your shoulder 
and you send the the the, the lizard that's had its mouth clipped, a uh, mouth uh, sewn shut, out to go find the answer, and it's going to telepathically communicate the lizard, which is going to then whisper the answer into your ear. Oh, they're freaking doing so many drugs, man! Yeah. So many drugs. Yeah, yeah. There's all and and, the, and and then there's all kinds of things about gathering the drugs, right? Like you're only supposed to pick the mushrooms with a specific hand, either the left hand or the right hand. There's like a whole procedure about how you're supposed to gather them. The peyote buttons, you're not supposed to. Um, if you're walking along, you can't hunt for them. What you're supposed to do is like walk along and then just notice them and then walk back the same route and then they appear to you. Like it's this subtle thing where you're sort of trying to trick Mescalito into like not thinking you are too earnest sort of. There's all of these weird practices that Don Juan is like very specific and very rigorous about how, how you're supposed to do every step of this sorcery. Well, and this gets to me very curious too, because how much of this is just folk knowledge that he gathered along the way and amalgamated into a mm-hmm. single character? Yeah, there, there has to be some truth in here. It yeah. isn't entirely, fa- you know, fabricated. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. we're going to get to where we're going to get to where did this all come from? Okay, so if Don Juan's not real, which it doesn't seem like he was, then how does Carlos Castaneda have this information? We're gonna, we're definitely going to talk about that. Um. The big event, I think, there's two big events that were, I think, the most evocative in the book for people. One was the bit about him turning into a crow. Um, I was going to read it. I think we'll just I'll just paraphrase it. Basically, what happens is he he takes the smoke, which is he smokes mushrooms, which, by the way, you don't smoke mushrooms. For people out there, it's just not how you do them. Um, <laughs> uh, Castaneda maybe didn't know that. It's not clear. Um, anyway, he he does it and he almost becomes a crow the first time. And then the second time he does become a crow and he flies around and he, he ends up in a ditch someplace and he has to be sort of like nursed back to reality. And there's a whole bit about Carlos, Carlos asking Don Juan, did I really fly like a crow? And Don Juan's sort of basically saying that's not the right question. You had the experience of flying like a crow. It's this whole thing like Carlos is playing with the notion of like, is it real or not? It's the significance of the experience. And in a way, I think he's talking about the book itself. I think he's he's subtly telling you that was Don Juan real? And he's sort of saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't actually matter if Don Juan's real. It doesn't really matter if he turned into a crow and and flew, right? Yeah, these con artists, they always, there's a part of them that always kind of wants to get caught. They kind of want to, they get off on letting you know that they're, they're pissing on your hair in the theater. Right, 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 right. They kind of do. This is a, this is a noticeable criminal, sociopathic, psychopathic con artist tendency. And the con, the con artists that I've encountered in my various walks of life, they they tend to leave enough crumbs that if you're you're really looking at it, they just they love to they want to rub it in a little bit. Well, because they need there's there's it's there's, because they're smarter they're smarter than you. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, and, and this is this is the thing you think about Carlos. It's like this dude was smart. Like there's no there's no mess around. He's a, he's mm. a smart dude. Um, uh, it, it is funny though that that people describe how be- how wonderfully written this book is. It's garbage. I, I think the sequence of events. The sequence of events is kind of interestingly done, but like 
it's not captivating reading on a sentence by sentence level. It's totally it's hack. Cool. It's it's yeah. hot garbage. We yeah. were having a chat in the Art of Darkness Telegram at t.me slash Art of Dark Pod recently about style. And yeah. yeah, nobody, if you're reading Castaneda for the quality of the prose, you're not, you're no. missing the point. Yeah, that's not. Yeah. That's not what it's for. Yeah. Um, there is an interesting scene that's that I did find. Did a crow write this? <laughs> right. <laughs> there, there is a scene late in uh late in the, the teachings of Don Juan that I did find actually compelling as a scene. And what happens is um Don Juan teaches Carlos some defensive positions in case he is sort of attacked on the spiritual plane, right? You do see how funny this is, of course, right? Oh, yeah. Like this is oh, an of episode course. of It's Always Sunny. Yeah, this yeah, is... yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, go yeah. on. So he's, yeah. he's he's learning some astral jujitsu. Yeah, right, right. But then what happens, and then, and then Don Juan disappears, leaves Carlos in his house. And later that night, at like midnight, Don Juan shows back up. But it's not Don Juan. It looks like him, but his mannerisms and the way he holds himself and his posi- posture and his voice aren't right. And so he knows, Carlos knows that this is some kind of spiritual attack and he has to defend himself. And it turns out that this is a um, this is some some witch that basically has it out for Don Juan and is trying to to, to kill his apprentice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a powerful female sorcerer who is who's a rival of Don Juan. He's doing um, all these like astral kata in, right. in his mind. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. That fucking rocks. Right, right. Now, now this is the so now this is the question. Okay, we we did touch on why did this appeal to people, and I don't think that's that hard to understand why it actually appealed to people. What is an interesting, a more interesting question, I think, is how the hell did he get away with it? Right? How do you get away with this passing, you know, peer review or any kind of academic process whatsoever? Right. Um. There's a whole bunch of reasons we're going to go into it. We're going to go into a few of them. Um, one reason that we'll talk about in a, in a few, it's not my first reason, but just to tease it. And it's somebody that uh, AOD listeners will know. Um, Anna is Nin, who was a close friend of Carlos Castaneda's. We'll talk more about that in a second. Um, uh, uh, the no- another big one, probably the biggest one, why he was able to get away with it at first anyway, is this guy named Harold Garfinkel. Harold Garfinkel was a well-known UCLA sociology professor, a man who's a penchant for phenomenological thinking and Husserl and his development of a a field of study called ethnomethodology was as much of an influence on on Castaneda as any drug could have possibly been. Um, this Harold Garfinkel guy is really pretty interesting. You could do we could do an entire episode on him, to be honest. Um, this guy was friends with Anais Nin too. Yeah, yeah. Before Whoa. before he was well known, like once yeah. again, proof there are only twenty five thousand right. living people at any yeah. given time. This episode might have the most mentions of other Art of Dark- Darkness subjects of any of them we've done. It so doesn't add up if there are. What at this point, 3.5, 4 billion people on the planet in yeah. the 60s? I don't know what the number was. Mm-hmm. It doesn't add up. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, right? I really don't. I don't <laughs> yeah. know how to explain it. Yeah. So this Garf- Garfinkel guy, I, I am really interested in Garfinkel, and I, I might do some more reading on him. Fascinating guy. He had his own cult-like following at UCLA, and Carlos, as people may know, later had a group of people around him who 
it was probably a cult, depending on your definition of cult. Um, the other American dream. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, there are two American dreams. <laughs> one, one's getting well. What's what's the first one? The white picket fence. <laughs> oh, the, yes, the golden yeah, retriever. Yeah. Right. The second is a harem, and the, the second and... is a cult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that right. is, and I mean that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the, the, the girl the... boss cult, the mm -hmm. straight up Manson cult, cult, mm -hmm. the CEO of your your own startup cult. That's mm -hmm. the other. Uh, I see American you're right. dream. You're right. You're right. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Now, now Harold Garfinkel was living out the cult one himself, though it wasn't. It wasn't like a Waco cult, but it was certainly he had devoted followers, students who became followers. Um, he, um, and he, he probably was a major inspiration for Don Juan. Yeah, go ahead. Did this guy? Did Castaneda ever do a spoken word album? No, he did not. Okay, because no. he seems like a prime candidate for something like that. He probably okay. could have. He was quite a good talker. He probably could have pulled it mm -hmm. off. He was a good okay. storyteller too. Well, um, he would have to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, now he Garfinkel was an influence on Castaneda in a number of ways. Probably one was he was a direct influence on uh, for the character of Don Juan, and also in I said in um, in that in the After Dark for patreoncom slash Pod. I have three things, and I teased one of them, and I don't know if I even remember what the, they were. One thing we're going to talk about is how the character of Don Juan and this book in particular directly entered the American mythology through a film series that continues to this day. Like, it's one-to-one -one inspiration for stuff still happening in Hollywood. So that's one thing we're going to talk about. Um, another thing we're going to talk about is what happened to the witches. Okay. Carlos Castaneda eventually develops this group of women around him called the witches. And we're going to find out what exactly happened to them after Castaneda. It's a very interesting story. And the third, oh, the other one is what happened when uh, Federico Fellini, the great Italian filmmaker, fell into Castaneda's sphere of influence. Also very interesting, very weird story. Tremendous. I'm going to give yeah. you a quick break, Brad. Oh. We're, we're doing great. This is yeah. a lot of fun. I'm going to give you a break and I'm going to hammer the Patreon. Brad has three juicy tidbits prepared for the After Dark. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. We do an After Dark episode for every single episode that we do. We do these core episodes. We do dark rooms with guests. We always do an extra 20 or 30 minutes for Patreon. We also have a book club. If you sign up for Patreon, you get access to the book club. You can join us. We read different books. We all get on Zoom. We chat about it. You don't want to get on Zoom with other people. We record it. So you get an extra little bit there. You can just read along if you want, or you can just listen back. The next book club event is coming up on the 17th of this month. We're reading Confessions of a Mask from Mishima, the Weatherby translation. That is on September 17th, 2023. If you're listening to this in the future, you can get Patreon and just go back and listen to it. And those book club yeah. meetings are a lot of fun. We go into these books that are relevant to Art of Darkness yeah. or kind of Art of Darkness adjacent. And we've got a very special episode coming up at the end of the year. Aaron Gwynn, by popular demand, is coming back for the Blood Meridian Bookends Book Club Art yeah. of Darkness special and in we December. 
And we might just have him read the entire book aloud. <laughs> he, <laughs> he does. Wins. He goes for it. <laughs> he is the good. Blood Meridian yeah. guy. So if yes. you want yeah. that, we've also talked about changing the way that we release episodes. We're thinking next year, Patreon subscribers will, will get episodes of full, the core episodes, a full week before the hoi polloi. Right. And right. you don't want to be part of the hoi polloi. No, so no. transmute yourself into a crow, fly <laughs> over to patreon.com slash art of dark pod and join our cult. You will not regret it. This is, there is no overhead for this pod. You're looking at the, if you're watching on YouTube, you're looking at the overhead. That's it. Mm-hmm. So and a lot of people, and I'll get off this in a second, but a lot of people make a lot of noise about supporting artists, about supporting independent media, about looking after people who are actually making things. But then when it comes to swiping the credit card, they're either they're, they're too lazy or they're, they're, they don't want to download another app. Just do it. Because Brad and I put in the work, we put in the effort, we make this, this show, we love doing it. We want to do this for a very, very long time. The only way that that is going to be sustainable is if we can get these Patreon numbers up in a really meaningful way. We said at the beginning of the year, we were going for half a Crowley, <laughs> 333 Patreon subscribers. We're not going to make it at the rate we're going. We're going to no. need a giga surge of Patreon. Now we're not going to, we're not going to throw a fit if we don't make it because, you know, we're going to make half a Crowley at some point. At some point, enough people are going to take the Jimson weed and and <laughs> and fly into the, the Art of Darkness universe and join us in a material way. It's going to happen. At the rate we're going, it'll, it'll happen next year. We would yeah. love, love if it could happen this year. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. All right, Carlos Castaneda. Brad, I'm loving this. I love yeah. these 1960s episodes. I love flim flam. <laughs> yes. I like cults. I like yeah. little like uh like micro like a microcosm of the 60s. I like yeah. when academia is just proven to be total horseshit. <laughs> right, right. Which right. it's been forever. Like yeah. it's never yeah. none of it, you know, like what's real, yeah. what's not. Oh, yeah. don't don't look up the uh what, what's it called? The replication crisis. Right. Don't think right. too, don't think too much about it. Yeah. Everything's gonna be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. take your medicine and go to sleep. Yes. Now, and on this note about academia, we're going to talk about the Garfinkel, Harold Garfinkel, famed UCLA sociologist, and the field he invented called ethnomethodology. Now, you've heard of ethnography. You've heard of bot, uh, ethnobotany. What the heck is ethnomethodology? Well, this is from the life and teachings of Carlos Castaneda. <clears throat> Quote, uh, the primary idea of ethnomethodology is that every kind of reality is subjective or at least, quote, intersubjective. The result of people talking about things using language that signified their membership in a society or particular category of society. The fundamental practice of ethnomethodology was to question the unquestioned to make a problem of what hitherto had been unproblematic. Before ethnomethodology, sociology and anthropology had focused on how members of a society interrelated. Garfinkel and his fellow ethnos put the focus on how sociologists and anthropologists themselves related to the society they were in the act of describing. According to Richard DeMille, the guy who wrote this book over here, 
uh, a castinated debunker familiar with what was going on, he says this, quote, Garfinkel thought up some diabolical schemes for calling assumptions into question, techniques labeled breaching procedures because they tore holes in people's shared understandings and disrupted their social relations. Students went home on vacation with instructions to act like boarders. They were told to conduct conversations as though they suspected the other person were trying to trick or mislead them. They learned to talk with people whose, uh, whose noses their noses were almost touching. They were authorized to mistake people's social roles, like persistently demanding a table in a full restaurant from a person who was only another unseated customer. And in a technique that was soon dubbed Garfinkling on the UCLA campus, students were taught to pretend they didn't know the meaning of ordinary words. This was to teach the breachers that human interactions, particularly conversations, depended on shared but unstable assumptions. Okay. Breaching. Now I'm going to read a little, another little bit. <laughs> Arnold I'm Garfinkling all the time. I'm a <laughs> I natural. Do, I do like some of those sound fun, like pretending you don't know the meaning of an ordinary word. Like that sounds per- that sounds pretty fun. I might try that at a, at a party if I got bored. Just like what 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 what's a spoon? Like wait, <laughs> what is what is an e girl? What are you right. talking about? Right. I have no idea what you're talking about. Right? Uh, you know, a girl, but she, she did what? Yeah. <laughs> you bought what online from a what? It that might not actually be breaching. What? That might that might be genuine confusion. You paid uh, what <laughs> for what from a what? Here, let me smell it. Right. <laughs> Here's a little bit more on Garfinkling and all this. Quote, Arnold Mandel, a former student of Garfinkel's, now a psychi- uh, psychiatry professor at UC San Diego, thinks that in the end, what Castaneda did was to give Garfinkel just what he wanted. So when Castaneda comes back with this book, Teachings of Don Juan, this book is this book is breaching. This is a big breach. You're, you're basically disrupting the whole notion of anthropology overall, right? Quote, uh, said Richard DeMille, quote, Mandel suspected that in making Castaneda rewrite an intended thesis three times, Garfinkel had imposed his ethnographic nihilism so ruthlessly that the Wiley graduate student, Castaneda, had determined to give go him one better, to out Garfinkel Garfinkel, to prepare a beautifully wrapped empty package, a bogus thesis, a fake ethnography, which would achieve continuity and a sense of reality, thereby demonstrating the student's capacity to manipulate ethnomethodological tools without contradicting the master's teaching that all reality in social science was manufactured by social scientists. Uh, Going on, but DeMille... You got Garfinkel, son. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, Uh... Yeah. Oh, I'm not going to read that bit. We we will come back to that. So, so um, a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so it, w- the reason I'm, I'm going into this is I think whatever the case, whether, whether Castaneda was trying to out Garfinkel Garfinkel, or if he was actually seeing himself as the true disciple of Garfinkel, it's not entirely clear, but what is happening is I think he got at least partially, he got this notion of like, oh, this doesn't have to be facts. Like yeah. it can be all nonsense, right? Well, um, and this this all is downstream of philosophy and postmodernism and Wittgenstein and all of that. So this is oh, the yeah. fallout of all of that philosophy, yeah, uh, hitting the other fields yeah. and people going, "Oh, so it's all language games, huh?" Yes, and it's oh, interesting you say Wittgenstein because there is um people DeMille in, in particular, and we're going to look at a few examples. I don't want to go to too, spend too much time on it. It gets a little repetitive, but um, 
a lot of the book, a lot of the things that Don Juan says in the books it is literally just like paraphrased Wittgenstein or paraphrase somebody else, you know, um, it's probably Schopenhauer and others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just take it, yeah. Rewrite it a little bit and send it back out. And you know, that's like, that sounds very wise. And you're like, yeah, it's because it's written by one of the great philosophers of, you know, of human history. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, here's a, here's something from Carlos talking <clears throat> right around the time that, um, teachings of Don Juan came out <clears throat> quote, we have a picture of the world that has been given to us through socialization. And then we have a, and I'm just giving you this because this is basically pure Harold Garfunkel, Harold Garfinkel thinking. Um, we have a picture of the world that has been given to us through socialization. And then we have a preconception about what the world is like. And we call that reality. We assume it's there. We never doubt that. However, under very precarious circumstances, we get to doubt. Um, so, this is what Don Juan's doing. Don Juan is basically doing what Garfink to Carlos, the, the, the Richard D uh, DeMille actually treats Carlos in the books as a character that he calls Carlos. He distinguishes it from Carlos Castaneda, the man, which I think is the right move. Don Juan is doing to the character, Carlos, what Garfinkel was doing to Carlos Castaneda in real life, really sort of pushing him. T- and, and there is, there is, it's not that it's completely BS. I mean, I do think it's worth examining like how much your preconceptions determine the social reality, right? Like there is an interest, something interesting does happen when you try to just stress test social roles. Yeah. What happens if I, what, what you've, have you ever done this or have it happened to you where you're in a store and somebody asks you suddenly they think you work there for some reason? All the time, you yeah. never wear red in Target, right, for right. example. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's very weird because for me, if it happens, I have this weird urge to help them, but I have no <laughs> ability to. You know what I mean? You're yeah. like, well, I, yeah, because somebody asked you for something you should. And mm. so there is something there about playing with these ideas of like, who are we? How are we relating to each other? Um, but doing it as a prolonged experiment to see how much you can manipulate people is in social uh, you know sociopathic territory uh ethically sure. dubious yes yeah, yeah. you're yeah. on you're on strange ground and yet it does point to some underlying facts about our reality and yeah. how much of our reality is absolutely a, so- a social con- uh, construct yeah yeah and in a game think, it's games yeah. within games within games within games yeah. And yeah. I think, I think that is, I think there, there is a, um, there is a, what I have noticed in the discourse right now is there's a, um, there's a reexamination of all of these sort of, let's just broadly call this postmodern thinking that, it, and it's trying to kind of throw that stuff out, but, but, but there is something there. Like a lot of the, the quote unquote truths that we operate on are sort of just tacit agreement, stuff that we sort of, all kind of agreed on without talking about it anybody and... who's ever quit a job that has turned into some sort of insane psychodrama you know how yeah. you get into these weird psychodramas at work yeah not necessarily through any fault of your own it's just human nature something goes wrong the boss gets an idea about you somebody else gets an idea you have ideas about them everybody knows it's happening but nobody says anything yeah and you quit or right. you get fired and a week later, your life has completely changed because you right. simply stepped out of 
one of the most dominant games that you're playing. Right, right. And it's like, wait a minute, the sun's still shining on a Tuesday at one o'clock. The world hasn't ended. But you've been dragged into this... Yeah, kind of. And a, month, and a month later, you don't even remember their names. And, you're like, hey, right, and you don't that? even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That, uh, quitting, quitting bad jobs is probably like my third or fourth favorite thing. I love it. <laughs> Nothing gives me more pleasure. Right, right. I love well, it. Well, I quit because it turns the power. Say it tables. with me. Yeah. I quit. I, quit. <laughs> I yeah. fucking quit. <laughs> It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, yeah, and I'll let you yeah. guess what the, my my three favorite things are, Brad. One of them is doing this podcast Aww. for you, good people. Oh, that's all sweet. right. Yeah, I mean, we love doing our darkness. And yes, and thank mm-hmm. you for listening. And also, one one quick thing: go and five star us, iTunes, yeah. Spotify. Hit it up. That counts. Mm-hmm. People look at the pod and they go, "Ooh, it's got a hundred plus five stars." What it Yeah, it gives it credibility. We need credibility. We appreciate it. Share the pod with your friends. We're making this show to go viral. And people need to know about Carlos Castaneda. I need to know about Carlos yeah. Castaneda. This is filling in some holes for me. I'm it having will. a really good I, I'm yeah. having a lot of fun, Brett. Good. It's fun. Good. 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 Now, I'm I mean, I'm kind of trying to weave these things together. We're talking about how did Carlos Castaneda get away with it? And that is how did he get this approved as his master's thesis? How did UCLA, the whole program, the whole school go for it? How did it? <laughs> you know what? I, my guess right now, oral hmm. sex. That's ah, my guess. I mean, if that's all you do, you get pretty good at it. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, he is so, in LA. Yeah. I mean, let's let's oh, yeah. be real. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So so the one reason I'm kind of saying is he this teachings of Don Juan book is almost a natural result of Harold Garfinkel. This this at this this whole practice that's going on at UCLA. It's sort of a it's sort of a logical conclusion of something like Garfinkeling, right? So that's one way. Um another thing Yeah, it's a yeah. feature, not a bug. They're yes. playing with reality itself. And f- right. what, what does anything mean? Yeah. And, so then yeah. what you're going to take and then Castaneda is literally Garfinkel's best, most dedicated student. And what he's going to write a book that's completely true. Like that would it would make less sense if it was completely true when you see it through this Garfinkel lens, I think. Um, hmm. Another reason that it probably passed muster is, look, it's 1968. It's the count. The counterculture is in full swing. Uh drugs the ucla uh institution frankly wants to be hip right you want to appeal to the undergraduates you want to oh there's cool stuff happening we got this guy here he goes out into the desert with a shaman he's doing drugs out there like like they they don't want you don't want to mess that up man there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a a countercultural cachet that comes with that and you don't want to you don't want to disturb that we're we're just going to let castaneda do his thing Hey, Garfinkel says it's okay. So let's just let's just let's just let's just publish it. Hit print on that thing, right? So that's part of it. Now, another thing that you can't be denied is the power of Castaneda's personality. Okay. If you have a powerful personality, and again, you've overcome your the enemy of fear, right? Um, which I think Castaneda does, and you're incredibly charismatic and you make good arguments. Um you can get a lot done. And I'm going to read you a little bit on this again from the life and teachings of Carlos Castaneda. Um, very good. This is a very good book, by the way, um, if you're interested in this kind of thing. Um, this is after the UCLA print run of 
Teachings of Don Juan. It got picked up by Simon and Schuster and then it like went national. And um, uh, Castaneda's editor was this guy, Michael Corda. And this is what Corda um, had. Uh, this is what Corda. <laughs> When when Corda and Castaneda first met, they met in the parking lot of this diner and Castaneda walked right up to him and said, you're Michael Corda. And Michael Corda said, how did you know? And this is from this is from Castaneda. I'm a sorcerer, Castaneda said mischievously. How could I miss you? Of course, it didn't hurt that Ned described you to me. Right. OK, going on. Corda would later write of his impression saying this. I have seldom, if ever, liked anybody so much so quickly, a feeling that remains undiminished after more than 25 years. It wasn't so much what Castaneda had to say as his presence, a kind of charm that was partly subtle intelligence, partly real affection for people, and partly a kind of innocence, not of the naive kind, but of the kind one likes to suppose saints, holy men, prophets, and gurus have. Castaneda's spirit was definitely Rabelaisian and ribald, and he had a wicked sense of humor, but nevertheless, he gave off in some way the authentic, potent whiff of otherworldly power to such a degree that I have never doubted for a moment the truth of his stories about Don Juan or of the miracles he says he witnessed and later participated in. That was his editor. That was a big shot Simon & Schuster editor, right? So, you know, you imagine that guy comes in, he throws this book on your desk and it's sort of like, whew, you know. He he just sort of just convinces you. He just like he convinces this woman to marry him while she's on a date with somebody else, right? He's he can just he can just make these things happen. And there's a certain magic in that, right? There's a certain sorceric power in being able to do that. So that's that's another reason why this was able to get through. And 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 this doesn't, you know, we didn't touch on the fact that academia has all these if you can it's a game and if you know how to play it, then you know, you, you can make of some course. things happen. Well, and publishing yeah. is such a racket. If you have something that's starting to sell and you yeah. found the formula to sell it, right. you're not going to change a thing. Right. You are going to scale that, put it in every bookstore, send right. them on a speaking tour. Right. And you're going to say, write 12 more of these. Right, right. Because yeah, the, the, yeah. the Pareto principle in publishing is huge. It's all they sell. They sold twenty eight million. Co- I mean, that's unbelievable. That's a crazy amount. I want you to think about this: yeah. twenty million copies worldwide. Twenty eight. Yeah, twenty eight million yeah. copies worldwide. We're talking yeah. about like a number one album, mm-hmm. best selling, crazy. Mm-hmm. Probably half of those in the United States alone. Something like that. Some number. You have to understand how many millions of people are walking around with this flim flammery, this fabrication in their minds, mm-hmm. and how we're living in the wake of this. Like, yes. look at look around at the world now. Look at the state of things now. The mm-hmm. state of t- capital T truth, lowercase T truth. What mm-hmm. is reality? Mm-hmm. This is this. We will never live to see a day where the fallout of this is not among the most important facts yeah. of contemporary American life right. for millennials, for Zoomers. The generation where this won't matter anymore has yet <laughs> yeah. to be born. Right, right. We right. are still deconstructing and trying to understand what the fuck happened in the 60s. It's Nothing true. has yeah. changed since the, the late 60s. The only thing that's changed is the technology of mm. transmittal. But the tra- the technology of transmittal was deeply informed and influenced by this. Mm-hmm. Steve Jobs, what was it? The whole Earth catalog, that whole milieu were completely inspired and enamored of this type of thing. 
A hundred percent. And it influences practically everything around us. Yeah. The way yeah. we live our lives, the way yeah. we think about our lives, mm-hmm. the way we, in any case, yeah. I hope you're yeah. enjoying this episode of Art of Darkness. <laughs> I do like, I like thinking about the sixties yes. a lot. Right. Brad. It's an I interesting, really do. It's fascinating period. No doubt. We're never going to get, we're never going to yeah. get past it. Nothing will happen yeah. in our lifetimes that will fully pull us out of the uh, spiritual quagmire, the, mm-hmm. that the, the sixties, the particularly the, the late sixties signifies. Indeed. Indeed. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about where the Don Juan story came from. Okay. So let's assume that Carlos Castaneda made it all up, which seems to be the consensus. Where does he get this stuff? Right. Well, wasn't, wasn't Don Juan is the name of a great lover, isn't it? Don Juan. We're going to talk about that in, in a minute. This is the, the that's part of this part. Yes, absolutely. Okay. But I want to talk a little bit about the uh, Ananas Nin connection first. So before Castaneda even attended UCLA, he befriended Nin. Go ahead. Now, don't stop listening to this episode, but there's another core episode about mm-hmm. Ananas Nin, and she was a freak. She was, it was a, it's a wild story. <laughs> Freaky. Freaky story. Yeah, so you, listen I, to the end of this, but then go yeah. listen to the Ananas Nin episode again or for the first time if you're new yeah. to the pot. I, it, literally, when I was doing my research and I came across Nin, I was like, oh, she slept with him. Of, of course. I mean, Natu- would, naturally. Of course. Um, so in the late 1950s, she had this salon going on in in Los Angeles. She was living in Los Angeles. And uh, Castaneda went there again before he even started attending UCLA. He knew and was friends with Nin. Um, uh and they had an instant rapport. I mean, they're both foreigners. They're both in love with literature and the occult. They're both kind of mystical. They're both obsessed with their dreams, right? So it, it, there's a way, like, at first bluff, it doesn't maybe make sense that they they had such a connection. But it, it, the more you understand Castaneda, and if you listen to the Nin episode, it actually does make sense that they sort of hit it off. Um, I'm going to read a little bit about this. <clears throat> um, quote. Nin felt that creation and dreaming were very much the same. She said, the mood I fall into when I am truly possessed by my work is one which resembles the trances of the mystics. I shut out the outer world to concentrate on what I see and feel. There is no doubt that the act of creation is very similar to the act of dreaming. The difference is that it includes an activity which has been difficult to analyze. It is not only the power to summon an image, but the power to compose with this image. Okay. Uh, Nin believed that, quote, truth and reality are at the basis of all I write. I can always prove the incident which caused the writing, produce the character, the place. But because I insist on extracting the essence and giving only a distilled product, it becomes a dream where all reality appears only in its symbolic form. Everything I write will have to be translated, just as when you read dreams. To do so, the reader had to use the monson vital, as she called it, the necessary lie. Lying, she felt, was justified because the truth was, quote, not always creative. Okay, this is one of her, this is the first real writer Castaneda knows, right? And this is the way that she sees things. Um, Not only would this creative relationship be influential on Castaneda, it also may have been the thing that managed to nudge Castaneda into literary fame. I'm going to read a little, one more little bit. Quote, when Castaneda completed the manuscript for Teachings of Don Juan, he had long been, uh, it it was Nin who provided the necessary context. Nin believed that her, quote, interest in the teachings of Don Juan is what worried UCLA into publishing it. 
In gratitude and because of the debt he believed he owed her, it is quite probable that Castaneda named his Yaqui sorcerer Don Juan after Nin's father, Joaquin, who, whom she referred to as Don Juan. In his last book as well, Castaneda gives the name Joaquin to the little button-nosed boy whose collarbone he broke and whose pain he says he could not bear. Whoa. And if you know the story of Anna Isnin and her father, this gets, this goes so hard. This is so hardly. (laughs) Right? Crazy, right? Um, Okay, here's another thing. Another thing, where did this book come from? Where did the story in the books come from? Um, We have to recognize 1968, well, 1960, when he starts working on this, the fields of ethnography and ethnobotany were kind of exploding in a way. I mean, the West, these substances had been being used in some cultures for a very long time. But in the West, in America, we basically discovered psychedelics in like the 50s. We really didn't. They they weren't on cultural radar at all, right? Until until the fifties. Um, so there started to be, and if you knew where to look, there was already a lot of published information about this stuff. There were books out there, but the Life magazine article on psilocybin hadn't come out yet. But there was a whole bunch of stuff that our Gordon Wasson had written. Um, there was Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception was out there, but most people hadn't really read it. And there was a whole bunch of material available to draw on, but your average person wasn't familiar with it. It's just like you got to think like, if you were accidentally took LSD and you'd never heard about anybody taking LSD, what a crazy experience that would be. Similar to writing about it. If you've never heard of this stuff, you don't have to go that far before it sounds absolutely insane. And nowadays, reading Castaneda's depictions of drug experiences based on our much more psychedelically infused culture, they don't seem that crazy anymore. But at the time, it was like, this is, you know, this is basically surrealism. Like, it's, you know, bonkers what he what Castaneda experienced, right? Um, <clears throat> I mentioned some of the books that he drew on, Doors of Perception, uh, The Sacred Mushroom by Andrea Puhar, uh, Puharish, uh, Weston Labar's Peyote Cult, a bunch of others. Um, there's also a... Uh, which is really interesting where he got all this. Not, uh, Don Juan was referred to as the Nahual, the, the, the one who knows or a man of knowledge. And it seems that Castaneda probably pulled a lot of the sort of sorcery practices and, and ideas about the, the various hierarchies within the Nahual culture from this essay that's actually reprinted in this book. Um, a 1894 essay by a man named Daniel Brinton on Nahualism in Native American folklore and history. Um, so kind of interesting stuff. Um, not only that, but basically here, here is the thing. So Castaneda is supposedly spending all this time out in the desert with Don Juan learning Yaqui sorcery, but What's tricky about that is he seems to be in the UCLA library an awful lot for a man who's also supposedly out in the desert learning to be a sorcerer, right? So why, why are you, why are you spending eight hours a day at the library if you're like, (laughs) and the UCLA library happens to be one of the very best places in the world 
to reference ethnobotanical and ethnographic material. If so I was smoking anywhere, mushrooms yeah. in the right. UCLA library bathroom. Right, right, right. Yeah. When I turned now, into a crow. Now, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's my story. I'm sticking to sticking it. to it. It was yeah. a very awkward time. <laughs> if you've ever had run the runs as a crow, you know yeah. what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. You in yes. the front row, you know what I'm yeah. talking about. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm going to read you. Start gnawing back and forth. <laughs> Did this guy go on a speaking tour? Did he speak to people? And, well, and, okay, a little, right. a little bit, but we're going to hit his public persona fascinating once he hits it big but we're gonna get there i want this, this totally was the guy by the way mm-hmm. for people for our contemporaries for yeah. the people millennials etc yeah uh for the audience this is the guy who would have gone on oprah yeah and oprah would have fawned all over him and then later it would have been discovered that he was full of it right but it really wouldn't have mattered yeah. like in the long run the right. damage right. was done the right. books are still out in circulation mm-hmm. and he's still out there hustling. Right. That's right. this guy. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. We're, we're going to yeah. talk about how it all comes crashing down, but then somehow doesn't come crashing down at the same time. We're going to tell that story. Yeah. The other American dream is exactly, yeah. this is what yes. it is. If, yes. By the way, this, this is the playbook people. Yeah. If you're, <laughs> if you're looking for an exit, if you want to, if you want to do my fourth favorite thing and quit your day job. Yeah. This is it. Take notes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so interestingly, it's not that he's just, <clears throat> you know, it, it's one thing like, okay, let's say he was really, Castaneda was really, he was really studying with some, some, uh, Yaki sorcerer, but he was also, you know, he was maybe using the UCLA library for, you know, I got to check into that. Uh, is there, what's the history of, you know, using peyote, whatever, right? There is a way you could see that he might need to be in the library, but here's the thing. He basically stole and rephrased all kinds of material that can be traced back to other books. And in fact, in this book, Don Juan papers, this is the second volume of Castaneda debunking by Cecil B. DeMille's son, Richard DeMille. Um, This is called Don Juan papers. I think this came out in 1980, I want to say. And it's just a series of essays on different aspects of the Castaneda phenomenon. But one thing he does in here, uh, uh, Richard DeMille, he went and he tried to find as many um, touch points between Castanet, what Castaneda writes in the in his books, and m- materials that Castaneda would have had access to. And there's, I don't know, sixty pages of these things of just like, here's what Castaneda said. Here's where he got it from. This is something that Don Juan said in the books. Here's where he got it from. And I'm just going to give you a couple of these so you get a sense of what that's like. Yeah. Weaponized autism. Yeah, that rocks. Yeah. And so this in the back, there's this thing called the Allaglossary, and it's literally an alphabetized list of subjects and sort of references and where it came from and what Castaneda said. So here is a bit on uh, the subject of coyote. This is from a book by a man named Underhill written in 1936. And this is there are records that Castaneda checked this book out of the library or referenced it in the library. <clears throat> Quote, my husband was a coyote meter. He saw a dead coyote on the sand. That coyote rose up and said, do you want to see something? Yes. My husband died right there and the coyote carried him away. Next morning, my husband awoke and found himself 
lying by that dead coyote. The coyotes had killed him and taught him while he was dead. Okay, that's from this Underhill guy. From uh, Journey to Itzlan, which is uh, Castaneda's third book. Quote, he kills the man on the spot, and while he is dead, he teaches him. The coyote said, Que bueno, and then I realized that it was a bilingual coyote. When I again became aware of myself, I was lying on the rocks. Okay, here's another thing on the subject of cr- of crack, just a crack, right? It's a, the crack between the world is a big thing in the Castaneda universe. Quote, and this is from a book by uh, uh, Mercia Eliad. So, so somebody was on crack. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is from Mercia Eliad. Uh, quote, candidate shamans must go up to the sky through a passage that opens, but for an instant. <clears throat> this is from Castaneda. Uh, this would be from Teachings of Don Juan. Quote, it opens and closes like a door in the wind. It is a plane above the ground. Um, here's, uh, here's something from uh, Gordon Wasson's writings, also about the crack. After vomiting twice, Wasson saw dark gates reaching upward, beyond which were uh, were about to part, and we were about beyond sight, which were about to part, and we were to find ourselves in the presence of the ultimate. The gates were to part and admit us into the presence of the ineffable, whence we might not have returned, for we had sensed that a wi- that a willing extinction in the divine radiance had been awaiting us. Now here is Castaneda in, I believe. This would have been the second ring of power, one of his later books. <clears throat> Quote, that moment is announced by prolonged shaking of limbs and violent va- vomiting. The crack between the worlds appears right in front of his eyes like a monumental door, a crack that goes up and down. When the crack opens, the man has to slide through it. He has to intend and will his return or the mushroom will not let him come back. You must decide whether or not to return. Okay. So there's these co- correspondences. Um Here's another one um, on drugs. <clears throat> this is also from uh, Mercia Eliad's book, Shamanism. Quote, narcotics are only a vulgar substitute for pure trance to provide an imitation of a state that the shaman is no longer capable of attaining otherwise. Now, here's from Carlos Castaneda's book, Tales of Power, which I think is his fifth book. This is the book where Castaneda stops doing drugs and basically says, uh, you know what? The drugs only take you so far in this sorcerer power. There's there's other levels to it that don't involve drugs. Quote, I realized that the meaningful transformations and findings of sorcerers were always done in states of sober consciousness, right? So we're getting these, he's pulling all, and and this goes on for page after page. I just pulled a few almost at random. Um, Castaneda is everything that Don Juan's saying. Castaneda is finding someplace else, right? He's picking it up here and he's picking it up there and he's conglomerating it together. And in a way, it's it's sort of a masterful thing. You could probably get away with doing that for a book, but can you get away for with doing that for 12 books? That's... And making it come across like it's nonfiction, that you're not right. making anything up. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Very crazy, Ooh. right? That's a now tall here, order. Yes. Even now, in the 60s. Now yeah. And now when the 70s come along, the yeah. vibe shifts, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. Mm. It does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now- 1968 this book comes out it's very Check, quickly, please yeah. <laughs> right right it's a very big hit so it sort of starts as a cult hit and castanade becomes a, a celebrity on the ucla scene he's like he's still a student and he's he's a celebrity basically on campus um and his influence just grows year after year the second book um uh, a separate reality and the third book journey to Itzlan, are both new york times bestsellers the great Mexican poet and eventual Nobel Prize winner Octavio, uh, Octavio Paz would write the introduction for the Mexican edition of Teachings of Don Juan. And by 1973, Carlos Castaneda is on the cover of Time magazine. 
Okay. He was huge. Now, how does this all come? There's there's also a situation where he's playing, he's playing an ethnic figure. He's playing a part here to satisfy the, um, like a need in the American culture at, yeah. in that moment yes. for well, authenticity and for. Well, yeah. Um, you can see the appeal of like you're in UCLA and the Sonoran desert, which relatively speaking is not that far away. Right. You can see this notion of like, you know, with all this stuff going on in the modern world, you know, all this bullshit, you could walk out into the desert and find the truth. You know, there's a certain sexy, there's a certain appeal to like, I, I find that appealing personally. It's biblical. Right. Yeah, Mm. exactly. And so I think that was part of it too, is like the truth is like right out there and this guy found it, you know, I think that's part of the draw, but it eventually the reputation starts to come apart. And then you might find this interesting. The first person to publicly in a public published forum, question the veracity of this whole book this whole Don Juan enterprise, this whole castinated enterprise, you'll never guess who it was. Joyce Carol Oates. What? <laughs> 1972, before the Time Magazine piece. JCO, come on the pod. Talk I've, about I've, this. I've, I've tweeted at her multiple times trying to get her to come on. This, this is an open fun. invitation. Open invitation yeah. to JCO. Yeah, we, we would have a great time. She's She's yeah. great. We're um, how we're housebroken. Yeah, we know how yeah, to, be, we can behave. Nice. Yeah. She asked in the Los Angeles Times, is it possible that these is it possible that these books are nonfiction? Uh quote, I realize that everyone accepts them as anthropological studies, but they seem to me remarkable works of art on the Hesse-like theme of a young man's initi- initiation into another way of reality. They are beautifully constructed. The dialogue is faultless. The character of Don Juan is unforgettable. There is a novelistic momentum. And then other novelists, such as William Kennedy and Theodore Surgeon. Very clever of her because she's praising it, but undercutting it in a very extreme way. If it's being presented as anthropological nonfiction. Right. Hesse Hesse is coming up soon, by the way. I've got, I'm doing Dante. I'm doing Beckett. I'm doing Hesse. Bangers. Bangers all Mm. free. Yeah. Mm. Yes. I I do love this, the fact that the novelists were the first people to poke a hole in it publicly because they read it and they're like, this is a novel. I know. They're like, I know what a novel is. This is a novel. (laughs) It's like it's like you take a carpenter and you're like, this is a table. The carpenter's like, that's not what a table is. It's so funny. (laughs) You take it to like an anthropological uh, anthropology person. They're like, wonderful anthropology. And they they haven't read a novel in. (laughs) Right, exactly. decades so exactly. they they <laughs> tremendous yeah, yeah joyce carol oates is like the, the little the scenes the, the scenes work like a novel there's no <laughs> life doesn't work this way we work tirelessly to create craft scenes that operate like this right yeah, exactly. great point great yeah. point um our um our gordon wasson now for people who don't know i don't want to go too deep on our gordon wasson our gordon wasson is the american banker who, weirdly enough, went down to Mexico and basically discovered a a psilocybin mushroom. I guess you might call it a cult. Um, He discovered ritual use of psilocybin mushrooms in Mexico. Hallucinogenic mushrooms, believe it or not, were not known to American culture at all before the the middle of the 1950s. In Mexico, they had been using them for, I don't know, some amount of time. It's not exactly clear. Um, but our Gordon Wasson read this stuff and was like, huh, 
<laughs> he read teachings of Don Juan. I was like, mm, I'm not so sure. Let me see what I can find out about this. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that was interesting <clears throat> is that Castaneda claimed that the mushrooms that Don Juan gave him were harvested from the same region that R. Gordon Wasson found his mushrooms. This is Oaxaca, Mexico. And so, but the way that they're being used in teachings of Don Juan is not how they uh, were being used in Oaxaca. And R. Gordon Wasson, there's, there's suspicions about how he was funded by the CIA, and he certainly was, whether he knew he was or not. Whatever the case. I was waiting for that to come up. That was inevitable in this episode. Yes. That, that's got to be a bingo card moment. Oh, for sure. For sure. Now, agency. Right. Whatever we think about our Gordon Wasson's intentions or whatever, one thing that definitely happened is he went to Mexico and he found Mexicans eating mushrooms and nobody knew this was going on. That definitely happened. Um, and so Castaneda clearly just read that document was like, oh, well, um, my mushrooms are from Oaxaca, too. <laughs> yeah, why not? That that that's good because they're all, they do exist down there. So if I say mine are from there, who's going to question it? Well, the how much fun he must have had too. He must right. have had uh, Castaneda must have had so much fun. Yeah, Cre he was world building. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's a yeah. there's a lot of extra zhuzh when you pretend it's real. I right. love it. Right. I love right. it. He right. could have he could have just said this is a novel. Yes, he could have. But he there's something busted in his brain. There's something mm -hmm. broken mm -hmm. and 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 pathological to have oh, to sure. pass, it, pass it off as because as as JCO said, it could be you could have probably pitched this as a novelistic, but maybe the style wasn't high enough or or of high right. enough quality. But you probably could have moved some copies if you pitched probably. this as like an American. I'm like an in American 19, Hesse, in 1960 and, in 1968. Mm -hmm. Probably, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Yeah. One, now, one wonders, though, in an alternate universe, would it have sold if he had gone it, that it, route? It wouldn't have, Probably it wouldn't have wouldn't sold have. the same. No, mm. no, no, it wouldn't have sold the same. The so, mark I, wants to be conned. That's true. Yeah, the yeah. mark wants it. Yes, 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 yeah. And I'm gonna, I want to talk a little bit later once we get through some stuff. I want to talk a little bit later how this book and this phenomenon of it being a hoax really does actually fit into the the tradition of occultism. We're going to talk a little bit more about hmm. that later. Um, but I want to talk about this R. Gordon Wasson piece because it's really interesting. So R. Gordon Wasson was a little bit suspicious and he writes a letter to Castaneda. He's like, hey, look, I'm I'm an F and it's funny because R. Gordon Wasson introduces himself like, listen, I've also written on this subject. Our, and our Gordon Wasson doesn't realize at the time that literally Castaneda has read every word that Wasson has written, right? And Castaneda pretends also in their correspondence like he does he didn't know who he was before this, which is humorous. But Wasson has some specific questions. He says, So you smoked the mushrooms because Wasson knows that you don't smoke mushrooms. That's not how it works. You can't they don't powderize like that. They just don't. And so even if you dehydrate them completely, they sh kind of shred. They don't, this, this, this isn't how it works. And um, 
And so he was like, well, were these psilocybin Mexicana? And Castaneda's like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't know what they were. I, you know, they were, we did them and he had them. And, you know, what, he sort of hand waves over the whole thing. Right. And do you have any samples? Well, no, he wouldn't let me back take off, man. I'm a scientist. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and then what's interesting is, is Wasson asks him, so do you have any field notes? I mean, you wrote this whole book. You must have field notes. Right. And, Castaneda sends him eventually sends him like I think it's 12 pages of handwritten field notes and then the problem is that these have been later were examined by Richard DeMille and the dates in the field notes so stuff in this book like there are section headings like this one I'm looking at right now Sunday February 7th 1965 and then he says what happened that day but then you get the field notes and they have dates and they don't line up at all with the book so like Castaneda like hastily wrote some field notes afterwards, handed them in and didn't double check that they corresponded to this book. Right. <laughs> I'm going to have to say, Again, I really zero. don't. I really don't like this guy, man. No, I, no. I don't like this guy at all. No, no. But it, no. but I like the story and I yes. like what it tells me about that period in America. Mm-hmm. And it tells me something about the America we live in now. Right. right. Mm. Yeah. Now, now here's here's what's another thing that's interesting about the our Gordon Wasson story. Twenty eight million copies. Yes. Yes. And all those people who were influenced by it, who I who I mentioned are in the in the top of the episode. Um, our Gordon Wasson gets these letters back from from Castaneda is even more suspicious than he was before. And then here's what's interesting. He later meets Castaneda in person. And again, Castaneda's force of personality shuts down all of our Gordon Wasson's suspicions. So literally, when it's all on paper, our Gordon Wasson's like, this shit does not add up. And then somehow you get in a room with Castaneda and you walk out and he's he's reprogrammed you to perceive the entire thing in a different light. It's very fascinating. Incredible. Incredible. And, he, he had some power. People had and, this. If you, you can meet yeah. people like this. Yeah. And this is what I'm saying. Be careful did out Ca- there. Did Castaneda go out into the desert and study with a sorcerer? No. Was Castaneda some kind of sorcerer? I mean, yeah. I mean, he could do stuff I couldn't do for sure. Right. And if magic is all about just making your will happen, which it is, then Castaneda is some kind of magician. Right. So that's the part that I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Or one of the parts that I think is Agreed. really interesting about this story. Mm-hmm. Now, now Man, at the time I wonder what was going on in in his head as this yeah. was all happening. Yeah. <sighs> we're gonna get we're gonna get to it. It's very difficult to get kind of personal and intimate in Castaneda's head, but we're gonna pull out a couple of things. But first I want to talk about this Time magazine article. So 1973, Time magazine puts Carlos on the cover. He's not actually on the cover because I think there at this time there was only like one photo of Carlos Castaneda. Um, they had it assigned a crack team of journalists to try and figure out what Carlos's real deal was. And this is this is after J- JCO had been like, I think this is a novel. This comes out the next year, this Time magazine piece. And they started finding that a bunch of the facts that he had given here and there weren't true. <laughs> okay. And The couple of things they pointed out, Time Magazine, doing some actual journalism back in 1973, they said, "Um, how come nobody else ever has met Don Juan? How come Castaneda is the only person to have ever met Seems like a man with that kind of wisdom, even if he was in the desert, 
seems like he would he'd have yeah. a little house somewhere right. he'd have a, maybe a family he didn't well, influence other people yeah. he'd come from a tradition he yes well that's the story he, he did to come a from lineage a yes mm. and then you have to think these books come out you think there weren't dozens of people going out to the desert to try and find him? To hundreds find of people him. nobody mm. ever finds him right there's no follow-up articles like oh i i met don juan and you know um okay now <laughs> now let me read from this time article remember this is 1973 <clears throat> uh quote with castaneda's increasing fame have come increasing doubts Don Juan has no other verifiable witnesses, and Juan Matus is nearly a, as common a name among the Yaqui Indians as John Smith farther north. Is Castaneda real? If so, did he invent Don Juan? Is Castaneda just putting us putting on the straight world? Among these possibilities, one thing is sure. There is no doubt that Castaneda, or a man by that name, exists. He is alive and well in Los Angeles, a loquacious, nut-brown anthropologist surrounded by such concrete proofs of existence as a Volkswagen, a master charge card, an apartment in Westwood, and a beach house. His celebrity is concrete, too. It now makes it difficult for him to teach and lecture, especially after an incident at the uh, UC Irvine's campus last year when a professor named John Wallace procured a xerox copy of the manuscript of his third book pasted it together with some lecture notes from a seminar on shamanism castaneda was giving and peddled the results to penthouse magazine this so infuriated castaneda that he is reluctant to accept any major lecture engagements in the future at present he, present he lives quote as inaccessibly as possible in los angeles refreshing his batteries from time to time at what he and don juan refer to as a power spot atop a mountain north of nearby malibu a ring of boulders overlooking the pacific so far, he has fended off the broad out of here. It's <laughs> great. Get right? out of here. Um, okay, going on. Anyone who tries to probe into Castaneda's life finds himself in a maze of contradictions. But to Castaneda's admirers, that scarcely matters. Look at it this way, says one. Either Carlos is telling the documentary truth about himself and Don Juan, in which case he is a great anthropologist, or else it is an imaginative truth and he is a great, great novelist. Heads or tails, Carlos wins. Okay, continuing on a little bit. I, I do. That is not how reality works. That is not how any of this works. That leads to untold horrors in actual reality. Mm -hmm. uh, that's where I draw the line. That's not okay. It's not <laughs> cool, man. I'm for. I'm firmly on team. We gotta. You can't frame a novel as anthropological truth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I am on that team. Copy Whatever that. team that is, that's <laughs> that's what I'm on. Copy that. Let me read yep. this last. Let me read this last paragraph. This time, you see, are article. you not on? Are you not on team reality, Brad? Um, are you? I am. I I am so pleased. There is a sense in which I am so pleased by the phenomena of this. Like it, it's I find it humorous and ironic, and that I'm I, I'm so I'm glad it happened. But uh, I also I am not saying it doesn't matter. But it, I am also as a narrative fascinated that it happened. So yeah, I, like I'm, I'm glad. Say, he, I'm, I, there's a way right. in which I'm glad he did this. I I cosign. <laughs> As a as a trickster enjoyer, yeah, yes, I cosign, but also, and we're not going to go down a thirty minute rant here. Yeah. This yeah. is also why we can't have nice things. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, this is. I don't think you should lie. 
I, I mean, I'm a novelist. I get the idea you're concocting a story. I understand that. But you're framing that as a story. It's a very different thing than, than this is this is true. Yeah. 28 I, I, million copies. Yes. Yeah. Flim flam, man. Yeah. Um, but I also like academia and the publishing world being kind of, you know, show, you know, nothing changes caught with their pants down. Let I me read this it. last paragraph yeah, because it has this delightful bit of of racism that I, I that. I'm not saying the racism is delightful, but Time Magazine 1973, you could write this. So hold on. Indeed, though the man is an enigma. Go ahead. (laughs) I'm just just beeping it out. No, go ahead. The man is an enigma wrapped in a mystery wrapped in a tortilla. The work is beautifully lucid. (laughs) Could you imagine writing that now? Oh. Oh. Castanet his story unfolds. Say, read it, read, read it again. Is it? Wait, wait, do they double down? They keep going. No, no, that's pretty much it. Indeed, though the man is an enigma wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in mystery, wrapped in a tortilla, the pork is beautifully lucid. (laughs) Castanet his story unfolds with a narrative power unmatched in other anthropological studies. Its terrain, studded with organ pipe cacti from the glittering lava massifs of the Mexican desert to the ramshackle interior of Don Juan's shack, becomes perfectly real. In detail, it is as thoroughly articulated a world as, say, Faulkner's Yaknapotawatha County. Um, I'm going to say as a Faulkner respecter, it is absolutely not as thoroughly articulated. As <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. Yeah, for um, real. Anyway, continues on in that vein. This guy never wrote a sentence that could stand up against uh, Faulkner. Not against Faulkner. I mean, come on. No. But um, sure. anyway, uh, now there's so the 1973, some cracks are occurring in the facade. Right. And not right. the good kind of cracks. No, no, not not the crack into the other world. The crack like your entire million dollar industry might fall apart. It's so in scummy. 19- this this country's so busted up that like the the not just this country, but this modern modernity and call it what you want. The way things are is so busted up that you can yeah. do this. You still that money keeps the money you made, they're never yeah. getting that back. No, no, no. You no. could be would, you just yeah. said that'll just compound interest. You'll still have your beach house. Right. You'll still right. have right. Yeah. Oh, I'm living in ignominy. Yeah. Yeah. My beach house. Yeah. I I'll just go. I, what what's the worst thing that's gonna happen? He just goes and writes under a pseudonym or right. yeah. uh just just you know, cashes his checks and yeah. he's fine. Yeah. yeah. That, that's yeah. not even what happened. It it keeps going. So wow. 1976. So that, that article came out in 1973. 1976, uh, the first book, not this book I held, but the first edition, the 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 first of the series, which this is the second book. Um, Richard D B uh, Richard DeMille releases the book called Castaneda's Journey, The Power and the Allegory, detailing voluminous research and not a little spec and not a small amount of speculation that the whole Castaneda ordeal, including Don Juan, is entirely fictional. In 1980, DeMille would follow up with this Don Juan Papers book, which I'm going to read a little bit of right now. Okay. Um, so so yeah, these books come out, you know, they're available, they're publicly available. Um, <clears throat> quote. If the trendy Castaneda could write at least five bestsellers in a row, why did he bother with the anthropology hoax? An obvious economic reason is that the competition was too steep in the fiction market. Defective style, weak dramatic structure, poverty of detail, cardboard characters that do not develop but are suitable for allegory, stereotyped emotions, and absence of ordinary human relationships makes his books unsaleable except as fact. 
Readers love a true adventure, even if badly told. A more important psychological reason is that anyone who would keep up such a difficult and complicated pretense for eight years before getting any material reward is a person who habitually refuses to follow the rules of society and insists on winning the game of life by playing tricks. As with Castaneda, this lifelong pattern often includes personal charm, high intelligence, and some genuine accomplishments along with the con job. Okay, um, a little bit later. Um, yeah, so this is where he starts getting... Okay, yeah, let me just read this because this is this is a summary of all, of DeMille's sort of arguments about why it's all BS. Yeah, That was a great insight that yes. I'm right on board with DeMille. Mm -hmm. DeMille mm -hmm. has given him a close-up. He is. He definitely is. He spent a lot of time putting all this together. Yeah, um, that's that's called mm -hmm. irony. Yes. Um, perf <clears throat> uh, continuing on, professors do get conned, admitted Clement Meehan, a member of Castaneda's doctoral committee, quote, but someone's going to have to prove this. Uh, the proof comes in three forms. First, the so-called field reports contradict each other. Carlos meets a certain witch named La Catalina for the first time in 1962 and again for the first time in 1965. Though he learns a lot about, quote, seeing in 1962, unaccountably, he has never heard of it in 1968. The teachings of Don Juan tells a gothic tale full of fear and wonder, barren of joy and amusement. Throughout its five narrative years, from 1960 to 1965, Don Juan is a hard master, a brooding presence who seldom cracks a joke. When, in narrative 1968, Carlos takes up the second part of his apprenticeship recounted in his second book, A Separate Reality, he finds the, quote, total mood of Don Juan's teachings more relaxed. He laughed and made me laugh a great deal. There seemed to be a deliberate intent on his part to minimize seriousness in general. He clowned during the truly crucial moments of the second cycle. Now, the text bears out this description, and when we get to the third book, Journey to Itzlan, Don Juan is a regular cut-up, a walking koan, a zen buffoon, notwithstanding the incongruous fact that Itzlan is set back in the early period of the cheerless teachings. So we are asked to believe that, quote, the total mood of Don Juan's teachings changed from day to day during the narrative of 1961 to 1962, from bright to somber, in perfect concordance with our reading of either the first or the third book. Don Juan, of course, shows many flashes of precognition, but I do not believe the most gifted psychic could infallibly assume the proper mood each day to fit the tone of one of two books in which his mood would be contradictorily described seven and 11 years later. Now, going on, a second kind of proof arises from absence of convincing detail and presence of implausible detail. During nine years of collecting plants and hunting animals <clears throat> with Don Juan, <clears throat> excuse me, Carlos learns not one Indian name for any plant or animal and precious few Spanish or English names. No specimen of Don Juan's hallucinogenic mushroom was brought back for verification. Don Juan's desert is vaguely described. His habit habituations are all but featureless, incessantly sauntering across the sands and seasons when harsh conditions keep prudent persons away. Carlos and Don Juan go quite unmolested by pests that normally torment desert hikers. Carlos climbs unclimbable trees and stalks unstalkable animals. With prodigious speed and skill, he writes down, quote, everything Don Juan says to him under the most unlikely conditions. No one but Carlos has seen Don Juan. A third kind of proof is found in Don Juan's Don Juan's teachings, which sample American Indian folklore, Oriental mysticism, and European philosophy. Indignantly dismissing such a proof, Don Juan's followers declare that enlightened minds think alike in all times and places, but there is more to the proof than similar ideas. There are similar words. 
when Don Juan opens his mouth, the words of particular writers come out. Okay, here's an example. Um, quote, the, uh, I'm going to read you two passages. Here's the first one. The human aura is seen by the psychic observer as a luminous cloud egg-shaped, streaked by fine lines like stiff bristles standing out in all directions. Here's another one. A man looks like an egg of circulating fibers, and his arms and legs are like luminous bristles bursting out in all directions. Of the first of these two passages, the first comes from a book published in 1903, the second from a separate reality, a direct quote from Don Juan, right? So again, and we kind of covered this territory a little bit, there are all kinds of clear cribbings from other, from other works to populate the wisdom of Don Juan, which... It doesn't mean that those aren't interesting or wise things. I mean, you can take something, a powerful piece of writing, right? And it still has its power in terms of being useful or informative or meaningful in some way. The point we're making, I guess, DeMille's making and I'm making is that that Don, that Castaneda is writing a work of pastiche. He's distilling a whole bunch of things from all kinds of different sources. And that was the word in a way. I don't know yeah. if I used it earlier in this episode, but that was a, yeah. the word that popped to mind. You're yeah. Right. right. Hey, right. you could do worse. Yes. You just don't yes. have to present it as a, an anthropological right. thesis. Right. 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 Exactly. Now here is, yeah. And this is the thing. If you wanted to write a novel where you have this old guru character and he's going to impart some profound wisdom on another character, there's nothing wrong with that as a premise. And there would be nothing wrong with, picking and choosing some bits of wisdom you had read and rephrasing them and kind of making it all work. There's nothing really wrong with that. It, it's really the, the how are you selling it part that's the right. problem. And right. then we smoked the mushrooms and this right. really happened. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to start saying smoking the mushrooms for jumping the shark now. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yeah, we don't say jumping much. the shark on this yeah. pod. We say yeah. he, he smoked the smoked mushrooms. mushrooms. <laughs> right. Um, now, here is here is the, the one part that I find the most interesting. Uh, one of the sort of cribbings that is maybe the most interesting to me, and it, it will require us to talk about one of the bits of sort of Don Juan wisdom that I think is useful, I guess. Um, there's an important concept that Don Juan has called stopping the world. And what stopping the world means, and he, what he's trying to get Carlos to do is stop the world. And what stopping the world means is to interrupt the incessant and uh, repetitive reifying internal dialogue in your head, right? Intrusive thoughts, right? Look, look, if you go to a therapist, if you go to a, a competent psychologist or therapist, one thing you they might do is help you deal with that internal dialogue. They might not call it stopping the world, but effectively, that's what they're going to try and help you do. Right. So it's fine. That's that's a workable, normal kind of thing. Now, this is sort of another way to think about it is this is the voice in your head that you think of as you. Right. And, you know, if it's doing something destructive to you, if it's, you know, every time you make the smallest mistake, it's going, you son of a bitch, you piece, of, you know, you might want to slow that down a little bit. Yeah. Right? yeah. Kill the babysitter, kill the babysitter, <laughs> yeah. kill the babysitter, no. kill the babysitter, no. kill the yeah. babysitter. No, that's yeah. not good. Right. If that's, yeah, if that's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, you gotta, you're gonna want to stop that. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, so what, how, how Don Juan would refer to that is stopping the world, perfectly valid psychological thing to do. Um, now it's an interesting, it's an interesting 
concept, I think. Um, but let's see where he got it from. Okay. Uh, Ooh, I like it. Yeah. This guy was dangerous. Yes. This was a dangerous man. Yeah. Well, you're going to see. He did some damage. Oh, you're going to see what he did to like literal individual, not like a, he did maybe bigger damage, but like literal people he knew it gets dark, Kevin. Oh. It gets very dark. Because you got to understand, Castaneda gets what Castaneda wants. And uh, it's nobody not, puts Castaneda in a corner. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Now, um, let's see. So, okay. Now, one thing that um uh t- 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 okay so so the mill in in the mill is going through everything that Don Juan and Castaneda have ever said trying to find where it came from right now there is uh this bit now our Gordon Wasson the guy who basically brought mushrooms to the Western world he had spent a lot of time with this woman Maria Sabina and psychedelic people will know this name she was hosting she was holding these psychedelic mushroom rituals down in oaxaca and um she referred she had a chant that when you translated when it was uh translated into english had been translated at one point as woman who stops the world am i right so this phrase stop the world now here's the thing if castaneda had never read that which he probably did, but Wasson didn't know that. If Castaneda had never read, I am the woman who stops the world, and yet Don Juan was saying, hey, you have to stop the world, that would suggest that Castaneda had had some encounter with some actual mystical practices, right? It's like finding the same thing in two different places. Castaneda found it. It might have some veracity. And Castaneda makes great hay of the stopping the world concept. The problem is that when you go back to the, what what Marina Sabina was saying, she wasn't saying woman who stops the world. It was a poor translation. What she was saying is, I'm the woman who she, supports the world. She's saying, I'll stop the world and melt with you. Yes. <laughs> Something like that. Yes. yes. So it's a poor translation. She, she's saying, I hold up the world. I hold she's up like the world. Atlas. Right. But Castaneda had read the bad translation and turned uh, this into a whole concept in the book. Now, it doesn't mean that the concept's bad. But I like this show, concept of stopping the world. I like yeah, this. There's something. Yeah. I, right. I, I, you need to do this periodically. I think it's one yeah. of the great things about a float tank, for right. example, is a right. quick boom. You're yeah. just going to cut out of the main yeah okay yeah. all right yeah but it's again it's he so he's he's trying to turn it into something useful i think castaneda maybe did think he was going to be helping people and a lot of people have I, we got to give some credit where it's due there are a lot sure. of people there's going to be people who listen to this episode who are going to say reading castaneda helped me tremendously i have nothing nothing against that i know we've yeah. maybe been a little harsh uh, on yeah. on him as a figure yeah. uh but Real, really. I mean, these these things sold the way they did for a reason. And yeah. I imagine a big part of it was people were desperately seeking some sort of spirituality. And 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 that's going to be evergreen. People are yeah. young people, old people, hell, people, people will yeah. always be going through a cri- one crisis or another. And right. if you can glean something good out of these books, go yeah. for it, but go with clear eyes. Yeah, I think take a take a grain of salt and realize that, you know, Castaneda himself you don't you can't you can't trust it just because castaneda said it it's it's sure. yeah 
Yeah. You can get a lot out of novels. You can, you can, yeah. Hesse, Hesse was right. influential on a lot of people and he yeah. never pretended that uh, the glass speed game was real. Right. Although of course exactly. it is. Right. Do you <laughs> see, playing, you we're see playing how that it works? Right now. We're playing it yeah. right now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Now here's where Castaneda's life to me gets even more interesting. Time Magazine piece comes out in 1973. Carlos effectively disappears from the public eye. It's like he almost, it's like the heat, you know, it's like if you're a criminal and the heat's on, you get out of town, man. You got to go, let things cool down, let things simmer down a little bit. You don't want a follow up interview. You want people, reporters contacting you. You got to kind of lay low. Now, he does that in 1973. And then in 1976, when Richard DeMille's book comes out, Castaneda disappears completely. Friends of his that he was seeing on a regular basis don't see him for four years. Nobody knows where Castaneda is for four years, except for a very, very small handful of people that were under his influence. Just uh, cashing the- those checks. He's got that money. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's selling millions mm. of books a year, you know? Yeah. Um. Now, here's the thing. There was a way, if you're a Castaneda follower, to fold this whole disappearance into the philosophy because one thing that Castaneda talked about was the importance of erasing your personal history of of. And we're going to talk more about the philosophy behind this, but this was an important concept in his thinking that you had to separate yourself from the world to a certain extent. You had to maybe change your name would be one thing you would do. And this would be something you might do to transcend your ego. These things that are locking you into material reality. Right. OK, now. Um, question is, what was he doing between 1976 and 1980 or so? We do actually sort of know, but I want to tell you what the story is according to Castaneda's books. Okay. Now, Separate Reality comes out 1971. This book purports to describe Don Juan's attempts to get Carlos to see. This is this thing. It's not just looking at something. You actually see it, right? Um, he, he writes it in italics, see. Uh, to see people as they truly are, for instance, to see one's path through life uh, and the way that in which it is a folly, to understand that the other reality is not only there, but it's witnessable and you can participate in it. We also meet another sorcerer in a separate reality named John, Don Gennaro Flores, who uh, also becomes instrumental in Castaneda's apprenticeship. <clears throat> a few years later, we get Journey to Itzlan. Here is the book in which Castaneda learns to actually, quote, stop the world. He learns the sorcerer seeks to return to a metaphorical home as a changed human being, um, that a sorcerer does not relate to normal people. Uh, Here he also is where the book that he learns that peyote and other psychotropic plants are not as important to the life of a sorcerer as he thought. It's a you get the message, hang up the phone sort of situation. Um, They were tools, effectively drugs and the Castaneda's world are tools to overcoming the enemies of fear and clarity. And I'll tell you, if you think that fear and clarity are enemies, one way to overcome them, at least temporarily, is to trip balls. I mean, they're going to muddy the waters a little bit. They're, for all the things they do, you know, if clarity is your problem, get those. Uh, get this those guy things. is on the perfect trajectory. He's cashing in in the 60s and the 70s, but the yep. party's over. Yeah, the, the bill is coming due. Yes. Yeah. Now we're back in the 80s 
And by yeah. the way, maybe you don't need drugs. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Ronnie, Ronnie Reagan's going to be president. We've got yeah. a, a cooler, nicer Carlos Castaneda going to be a little yes. more palatable for the suburbs. Yes. Now. Yes. We're toning right. it down. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, hmm. the drug part, we are. It's getting crazier and weirder, actually. Right. So after the drugs, Castaneda, hey, but as, as long as he's not selling drugs to the kids brad doesn't matter what he's doing yeah 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 drugs are exactly. bad okay right right exactly yeah. drugs are bad all every, drugs are equally bad every yeah. drug is equally bad that's right that's right every <laughs> drug is equally bad except for the ones that the the well, lab coats and, give you yeah and coffee yeah. and cigarettes right. are good right cigarettes yeah. are good for now they'll be good right. until the 90s yes but then yeah. we're going to take those away and then give you a phone that's suspiciously roughly the size of a cigarette <laughs> Uh, right. a pack which of cigarettes. is even more addictive actually and you're going to focus yeah. on that right and that's going right. to be better for you yes 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 yeah that's good now, so now, coffee cigarettes are good but mm-hmm. all other drugs alcohol alcohol is really good yeah alcohol is everywhere that's the yeah. best one for you everybody knows that alcoholics are very creative right. safe people <laughs> right, right, right and they're, they're not violent and it doesn't lead to any uh no. sort of social fallout no problems but no drugs, perceivable downside other drugs are super bad right 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 so he, i'm just really happy yeah. he got the drugs out of the flim flam honestly by the time we get to the end of the castaneda story we're gonna wish that he had just gone out in the desert and done mushrooms for the next 30 years right, right <laughs> we're gonna wish right that's on. what had happened okay, okay good now he, after the drugs thing in this journey to Islam, he learns to be a hunter, to be a warrior. And this is where this notion of being an impeccable warrior comes into play. Here's a quote. A warrior is an impeccable hunter that hunts power. If he, succeed, if he succeeds in his hunting, he becomes a man of knowledge. Um, one thing I read about Journey, Journey to Itzlan, which is funny, it's the third book, right? Comes out well into the 70s. And the character Carlos in it is still like, this weird, naive skeptic. Like anytime Don Juan introduces a concept, he's like, what do you mean? That sounds, that that doesn't seem like he, he remains this like, like wall-eyed fish out of water kind of character throughout. Like Don Juan will introduce something like, you know what you need to do, Carlos, is you need to learn how to really see. And Carlos is like, I don't understand what you mean. And meanwhile, it's like page 700 of this insane psychedelic thing. Like, you know what I mean? I don't know if that makes sense. It's like you're on this crazy trip, right? Where you're doing all these drugs and you became a crow and something. And somebody says to you, you need to learn how to really see. That's not that hard to understand what the guy means. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, right. <laughs> you're not having real insight. You're only seeing the surface. It, can mean, it means sort of everything yeah. and nothing. It's a sure. cliche. Sure. Right. Yeah. But but I just like Carlos is constantly posing himself as this like, well, I would what? Because he's because it's a character, it's a novel, right? And right. he's got to right. stand in for the reader, which again, as a novelistic mm-hmm. practice, makes perfect sense. But um, okay. Goofy. Now, by the time you get to Journey to Itzlan, he's pulling all this Cassidy is pulling all this together into something resembling a comprehensive system of sort of psychological philosophy, I would say. Um, and and we have to remember other things that are going on at the same time. We also have the human potential movement is happening. And Castaneda, you know, had earlier in the 60s, he had given talks at the Esalen Institute. Um, so he's he's adjacent to that whole that whole big sur scene of the human potential movement. And I'm not going to go into that too much, but for people who don't know Esalen or human potential movement, it's a very interesting Wikipedia scroll. I highly recommend looking into it 
fascinating. We're not going to spend too much time because Carlos was sort of adjacent to it. He wasn't really in it. Um, but I can't um, stress enough how that stuff has infested HR. Yes. Yeah. That stuff, when yeah. people on the Bird website, website on this part of Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, whatever, or in just generally yeah. grou- grouse about HR, those people yeah. at the higher levels are really into this stuff. That's not yeah. universally, but right. culturally. It's there. Yeah. It's a hundred percent there. Yeah. Well, this stuff gets gets embedded into things and you don't talk about where it came from anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of is like a it's like an assumption, right? It's a pre right. it's a preconception. You yeah. can draw a direct line from this stuff to Nexium. Oh yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. So let me let me let me kind of lay out a little bit of this this psychological philosophical system. Okay. Remember, um, stopping the world is an important aspect. Um, it's not the same as becoming a man of knowledge, but becoming a man of knowledge is almost like it, like you don't have to become the Buddha. Like, let's just get you somewhat enlightened. You know what I mean? Um, stopping the world is like a big step, but maybe not the final step, depending on how far you want to go. But how do you get there? How do you really stop the world? Well, According to Don Juan and Castaneda, there's a whole bunch of things that you need to learn. And and these are, I would say, these are good things to learn. Uh, One is discipline, uh, forbearance, uh, understanding the importance of timing, um, mastering your will, and overcoming the tendency to become a petty tyrant. So overcoming the intoxication with power that can come with increasing competence, right? Um, These are... By doing this, this is how you get rid of your personal, your sense of personal importance, right? This is how you're starting to transcend your ego a little bit, which fine. Okay. Another aspect of this is taking responsibility for what you do. This is very important in Castaneda world. Um, And, you know, these things I think are all reasonable. Like basically what I think the, the idea is, is like, listen, forget this whole notion of is there free will or is there not free will what we need to get you to do is to like maybe we do have free will but you don't and you we need to get you to the point where you do right where you are actually doing the things that you want to do you say what you mean you mean what you say you do the things you say you're going to do trying to take responsibility for all that and sort of harden and densify your own um uh being and then what do you do in the Castaneda system? You, you, you sort of densify your personal identity, and then you break it off the world by erasing your personal history. That's fundamentally what he's trying to get you to do. Um, how you know? How do you get there? These are other questions. If if you want to learn how to do that, you can you can read through the Castaneda books. But I think this is a core aspect of the sort of self improvement side of this thing, right? Um, now, another thing that was really important to Castaneda, he's was- trying to give people a shamanic rite of passage through literature. Yeah, yes, that, yeah, that's what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. He's trying to, you know, the current word we would have now, there's a lot of baggage. to. He's trying to empower people. That's what the books mm. feel like they're trying to do. Right. Um, uh, now, here's the thing. He's also Did very he... big. What? Okay. No, I, I'm hung up yeah. on the oral sex. Sure. He's, he's very big also on. Um, and again, this is something I think has value philosophically. He's very big on using death as a guide. 
And what do we mean by this? Here's a quote from Journey to Islam. Whenever you feel, as you always do, that everything is going wrong and you're about to be annihilated, turn to your death and ask if that is so. Your death will tell you that you're wrong, that nothing really matters outside its touch. Your death will tell you, I haven't touched you yet. Here's another one. Quote, death is the hunter and that it is always to one's left. One of us here has to ask death's advice and drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to men that live their lives as if death will never tap them. It's like, I, and yeah, I mean, memento mori is a long, you know, yes. Yeah. All Christians, well, not all Christians, but Christians yeah. meditate on death yeah. every ritualistically yeah. every single week. And, and, you yeah. know, a lot of, a lot of people, Daily. Will, yes, absolutely. And I think a lot of religions have some aspect of that. And a lot of sort of schools of philosophy will sort of tell you that like, Hey, the whole point of this is learning how to die, trying to deal with the fear of dying in some way, using it productively, maybe. Right. Um, it's what the whole memento mori thing is about. So it's not like this is that insane, that outlandish of stuff. He's kind of phrasing it in this sorceric shamanic language sometimes, but I'm so excited to to draw some lines between this episode and the episode we're going to be doing tomorrow on Dante. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what is the the comedia the the comedy mm -hmm. but a meditation on death in the it afterlife. Is. It, it is, really yeah. what it is. My god, there's some beautiful stuff mm -hmm. in the divine comedy. Oh, I, I cannot wait, wait to share. Yeah. I've been completely Dante pilled. Nice. It yes. gives me chills. I I am almost I almost want to ask for more time to prep the episode yeah. because I want to live in it a little longer. Yeah. But yeah. we're gonna barrel barrel through. Right on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But there's nothing that this guy is doing, this Castaneda guy is doing that Dante didn't do seven centuries sure. earlier. Sure. Like sure. Dante. Yeah. I finally understand what everybody talks about when they talk about Dante. The way that you mil Milton pilled people. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting ready to Dante uh, pill wait. people. I can't wait. It's incredible. It's yeah. just totally incredible. Well, in any yeah. case, yeah. that'll be soon. Yeah. On Art of That's... Darkness, a podcast about the dark side of creativity. Uh, How are we doing, right. Brad? How are you feeling? You're doing a good job. I'm, we're, Thanks, we're, man. Uh, what, we're going to be coming up on hour four here soon. Yeah, yeah. I feel we're like getting, we're getting there. We're getting there. I, we're getting there. I don't know yeah. if I like this guy, but that doesn't matter. Yes. Uh, yes. I'm very curious how he survives these accusations of – At this, it seems like by the 80s, everybody's – kind of knows it's like professional wrestling a little bit. No, they still kind of believe half and half. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. 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 Now, cool. 1973. So 1974, he comes out with a book, um, the uh, tales of power. And in this book, Don Juan dies. Okay. So, uh, I think this is interesting because what is one way? Okay. Time magazine says, Hey, nobody's ever met Don Juan. And Carlos says, yeah, that's because he's dead. <laughs> you just kill off your character when he becomes a problem. Um, now, according to Castaneda, Don Juan die, left the world in, quote, full awareness and doesn't so much die as he does pass into something called the second attention. Basically, there is another world. You can pass into it if you die in the right way, having accumulated the right degree of power. And this is probably a good time to note that Castaneda... Um, in conversations with friends of his that were, he had this one friend, this guy, Larry Watson, who I mentioned earlier, who was another um, academic at UCLA and then, of course, went on to have his own career. He's, he said that Castaneda was obsessed with his own death, 
He said that Castaneda would tell him sometimes that he believed there was a way to achieve immortality um, and that partly what he was doing, that is Castaneda, was learning how to pass into the infinite or pass into the second detention. Um, Castaneda was obsessed with the fact that he was going to die and he did not want to die. Okay. Yeah, like a narcissistic, sociopathic, ego, yeah. egomaniac like yeah. this who completely constructs a fabricate, fabricated world and passes it off as true is yeah. going to have a really hard time accepting that he will sure. eventually uh, be sucked into the void. Sure. But, you know, you think about it, it's like a lot of people do a lot of stuff out of the fear of death in subtle and not so subtle ways. I mean, you, you think, I mean, okay, so just putting on my contrarian hat, like what do you, what is one criticism that atheists have of organized religions? They say, well, you guys just made all that up because you're scared of dying. Right. That's what they say. And I'm not saying they're right, but like, this is something no, it's, 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 it's actually funny because the Christian answer is no, we made this up because we're not afraid of dying. Right. <laughs> right. 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 Well, that's the more sophisticated perspective on it for sure. But my, but boom. I guess my point is this, that like, boom, take that Reddit right. hat tipping, <laughs> but through, throughout history, people do all kinds of, things. I mean, that's what the whole cope thing is, right? Like mm. it, it's, we, we, all of us are doing things because we're afraid of dying. Right. And Castaneda's is just taking on a crazy it, it gets it gestates and mutates and becomes this very weird thing where he sort of convinces himself that he actually can do this. Right. Um, wow. So he believes that just like Don Juan, yeah. he can obtain enough power in the astral plane that he'll simply go to the second attention. Yes. Creepy yes. that. And that phrase too, the second atten attention, that yeah. sound that was like got an L. Ron Hubbard. Kind yes. Of, yes. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Now, who did nothing wrong, by the way? Yeah. Well, here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting <clears throat> about this guy. We, we need more Patreon money for lawyers before we're ever yeah. going to do LRH. I know that's a hack joke, but it's also true. Yeah. Now, here's an interesting thing about Richard DeMille, who is the premier castinated debunker. Wait, is he a Scientologist? He was. He wasn't only a Scientologist. He was, for a time, L. Ron Hubbard's personal assistant. Oh, yeah, he wrote huh. the first published introduction to Scientology. So now but he's he left. wondering, he left. Right. But now it's like, does that give him special insight or does that complicate his authority? Right. It makes it weird, at least, I think. So he goes after he goes after Castaneda mm -hmm. with this laser focus right well he's he, seen a cult leader right That's sure in his perspective supposedly right yeah and okay. the, giving him the, the did he come out did he come out against scientology he didn't uh I, he did on some level but i don't know that he like wrote books around it or anything but yeah. he left scientology for sure yeah, like when he was putting this together he wasn't a scientologist fascinating no that yeah. gives him i think that could give him some special insight into how someone like castaneda might operate right right Right, right. Theoretically. But I think it's worth, I think when you bring up mm. Richard DeMille, you do have to kind of point that out, that that's okay. part of his, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, <laughs> listen, America at this point is just a bunch of white picket fences of varying qualities. Right. And right. as soon as you step past a given white pick, picket fence, you are in a Venn diagram of cults. <laughs> that's it. True. And you, the it's game true. is to sort of pick which, how much of one do you want to participate in? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You can't escape it.
Now, let me give you a, um, again, we're telling, we're trying to partially telling the story of Castaneda's life when he was disappeared from the public eye as told through his books, right? In the book, Tales of Power, there is a big event um, called the, it's the jumping into the abyss event. And I'm going to just read a little bit of it. Quote, this is like the very end of Tales of Power. Quote, Don Juan and Don Gennaro, the other sorcerer, stepped back and seemed to merge with the darkness. Pablito, another apprentice sorcerer, held my forearm and we said goodbye to each other. Then a strange urge, a force, made me run with him to the northern edge of the mesa. I felt his arm holding me as we jumped, and then I was alone. And then the book ends. The book ends with Castaneda jumping off of a mesa into the void, right? Um, now, the next book that comes out, The Second Ring of Power in 1977, this is where Castaneda, now Don Juan is dead, this is where Castaneda officially becomes a sorcerer and he meets his other apprentice sorcerers who are now sorcerers. So the world is getting more complicated. And remember too, the 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 um, the sorceric world has now been populated with all these other figures. We not only have the protectors like um, Mescalito, the peyote spirit, and allies like the smoke, we have things called flyers and scouts and guardians all these things that that occupy the 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 separate reality in which don don juan and has passed into in which which castaneda is purportedly interacting with right okay um uh let's see so but he's what got is lore on? he's got yes. lore deep yes. lore yeah. he's cre- he's created now, yeah now this is this this is that's the story according to the books what was re- what was really going on Maybe that stuff was going on too, but here's some stuff that was definitely going on in the late seventies. While the money was stacking up, Castaneda is building his own school on Pandora Avenue in Westwood village, Los Angeles. Um, he's using his tremendous influence to bring more and more women mostly into his circle. He had a couple women that were sort of stuck with him. This woman, Marianne Simcoe, whose name was also, they all change their names like three times, so it's hard to keep them straight. Um, uh, and we're going to talk in the After Dark what happened to these witches after Castaneda's death, because they were devoted to him for years. Um, he had, in, in the late 70s, he's, he's building out this cult, his inner circle called the Witches, the slightly outer circle of women called the Shakmuls. Um, they come along a little bit into the 80s. And then a body of students, a slightly bigger body of students, mostly women who weren't um, who were coming to workshops and sessions, but weren't in the inner circle, right? Um, oh, by the way, that's what these people love to have. They love circles. workshops. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah they yeah. they love that word. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the thing is, the whole thing of his whole relationship with women has been thing from the beginning. But now he has influence, right? Now he has money. Now he has power, right? And he's always had the charismatic ability to draw women in. But now he's got all the other things that you might need if you're trying to just bring women in, right? Well, he's also uh, written him. He's he's like Gandalf in his own mm-hmm. book. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. He's a sorcerer. He's a powerful sorcerer from an ancient lineage, Kevin. Right. Now. God, that rocks, man. Yeah. Now. God. Um, he what is um, what is stopping you from doing this anon <laughs> only the will to power you need sort you need sorceric powers um mm. now by the end of the, so by the end of the 70s there's at least three witches and i think there'll be i think there'll be four total there's at least three witches that's again the devoted inner circle and then there is another figure 
um, a woman named Patricia Parton, who changed her name to Nuri Alexander, um, who he referred to as the Blue Scout. We're going to find out the fates of all of these women. And it's a, Kevin, it's a fucking crazy story. Okay. Just that's for the Patreon folks. Patreon.com slash Darkbot. Now, he had this whole group living with him, um, somewhere between four and eight women living in his Westwood Village compound. Okay. Now, here's the thing about seduction. I want Kevin. The most mentioned- predictable. Yeah, that's what trajectory that's, that's that this was happened. this was going to take. It's so yeah. clear that right. of course it's going he was this telling, way. He was telling everybody in the outer circle that he was celibate, but he's sleeping ah, with all of these women. Of course. Um, yeah. Now the, Kevin, the playbook. Yes, Kevin, you hit on the Don Juan thing, right? The Don Juan is a seducer, right? And, and it's true. And there's it's an archetype. It shows up in stories by George Bernard Shaw, Pushkin, uh, Moliere. Uh, there's a Mozart uh, opera that Mozart wrote the music for that has a Don uh, Don Juan character. Um, uh, one of the the first literary appearances in the 17th century, a, a morality play called uh, The Trickster of Seville and the Stone Guest by uh, Molina. Um, uh, there's the, the Mozart opera is called Don Giovanni. Um, and, and they're always a seducer. That's the archetype. They're always a seducer. And Castaneda was known, his friend Larry Watson knew about this when he was an undergraduate at UCLA. Castaneda carried a book around that just talked about the Don Juan character throughout literary history. He knew chapter and verse, the archetypal literary shape of what the Don Juan character is and does. Right. Um, So fascinating. Um, now, here's the question. What was it like to be seduced by Castaneda? Okay. We have the account of at least one woman and more than that, really. But I'll give you the, the account of this woman, Gloria Garvin. Um, she read uh, Teachings of Don Juan when she was 21 years old, 1968. And she knew somebody at the UCLA library. And so she gets this introduction. She meets Castaneda with her boyfriend. They go to lunch with Castaneda. Very quickly, Castaneda basically ensorcels her into his world. Um, uh, even when she tells the story years later, she still seems charmed by him. Like, you know what I mean? It's like 20 years later and she still has sort of a tear in her eye about talking about Castaneda. Um, he would, he would set up weird meetings with her. He would give her little tasks to do all to like, all to get her power up as much as possible, you know? Um, um, he would tell her she's an incredibly powerful person and that he's going to marry. I'm going to marry you, but it will not be an order, ordinary marriage. I'm totally committed to you. And meanwhile, you know, he's this powerful, popular, influential figure. She's 21, 22, 23 years old. They're on a beach in Malibu. He takes her up to the power spot and, you know, he's using all. Oh, of- I bet he I bet he took her up to the power right. spot. So yeah. this is uh, this is an age gap we got. Yeah, for sure. Big yeah, time yeah, age gap. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, he's he's like 40 something. Um, mm. He makes her change her name to Georgia Drake. She does. Um, she had to keep her whereabouts secret from her parents. Which oh, she did. that's that's um, like big check cult, 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 yes. cult, cult. Yes, as soon absolutely. as they start separating you from family. Yeah. But or remember, start, they want you to treat them he, as family. He had, cult, he, cult. had he had erasing your personal history tied in with his philosophy. Right. This is how you this is how you stop the world. You forget who you are, who you were. Sure. Right. Sure. Yes. Yes. Now, 
she would later recognize that like when she looked back on it, she realized that he went through people a dime a dozen. His whole life, he just went through people. He dropped them as soon as he was done with them, moved on to the next one, usually women. But sometimes he used men for other reasons, not sexual, but for influence or power or connecting him to people or bringing other women in. You know, maybe he would he might meet a couple and he thinks the way to get the woman is to sort of charm the man into the circle. Right. And then once they're in, then you separate them. Right. He would do all kinds of manipulative stuff like that. Um, one of his lovers believed that what Carlos was doing was deliberately harvesting energy from people like his intention was, I'm going to take this person. I'm going to suck out all their power. He's and then I'm going to use that, accumulate that sorceric power to leap into infinity eventually. Right. A, va- a vampire. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Now that, that tracks. Yes. Now this process continues well into the nineties. This he's constant. The witches never leave him. He's constantly building this group, making it bigger and bigger and bigger continues well into the nineties. There's a whole memoir about, go ahead. I'm going to say for the ladies out there right yeah. now. Yeah. I've got the ick. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. A little bit. Now mm-hmm. he, there's a memoir that came out uh, by Amy Wallace, the daughter of the novelist Irving Wallace, um, came out in 2003. It's a book called Sorcerer's Apprentice, My Life with Carlos Castaneda, which documents this whole process happening to her too, changing her name, sneaking into her parents' house to destroy family photos that had her, her in it, right? This whole racing personal history stuff. Um, he met when, um, Oliver Stone formed the production company, I believe it was in 1989, formed the production company Itzlan, named after Journey to Itzlan. He, uh, Oliver Stone and his assistant Janet Yang went and had lunch with Carlos. Carlos very quickly plucked Janet Yang out of that situation. She was dating Billy Bob Thornton at the time, and she plucks him out. She, he plucks her out of that situation, brings her into the group. Right? He would just he would just sort of grab these women and take them on these adventures. And they would just sort of fall into it. And it happens time and time and again. And sometimes they would pass out, but he always had another one available, right? It's a um, very uh, LA scene. Yes, yes. Let's be let's be real about yeah. that. Yeah. Not that you can't do this in other places, but right. yeah. it's got an LA vibe. Yeah, for sure. And and this is the thing. He was he and here's why what, what the appeal was. He was taking these people and he was making their lives an adventure. A yep. spiritual adventure in which they thought something meaningful is going to happen to me because of this. And he was convincing them of that. And in a way, you know, it certainly made their life story have a weird chapter to it. That's for sure. Things took a very strange turn you weren't expecting when you met Carlos. Um, <clears throat> now, the witches, the inner circle of witches became sort of, in a way, they became kind of mini castanetas. There were always stories about the fact that they had met Don Juan or other of the of other of the desert sorcerers. Um, there was a woman named Carol Tiggs um, who became the quote Nagual woman, um, and she quote uh, she supposedly disappeared into the second attention. I'm going to give you this story real quick about disappearing into the second attention. Carol Tiggs. Um, Again, this is from Life and Times of Life and Teachings of Carlos Gastoneda. Um, let me just find it here. So Carol Tiggs is just one of not just, but one of the women that's sort of in his in his circle. <clears throat> um, sometime in the fall of 1985, Carol Tiggs, the Nagua woman, 
Uh, wait, sorry. Um, da, 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 okay, so she came into she came into this circle. She uh, she disappeared in the late seventies, and she too had supposedly jumped into the abyss when Carlos Castaneda had, and she'd gotten stuck there. Is the idea? And she disappeared. She was no longer at workshops. She was no longer at the meetings. She was no longer the witches weren't talking to her or anything. She she disappeared, and. Uh, in 1985, she suddenly reappeared. She just showed back up. And the thing is, um, uh, <laughs> this is so hard to, I, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. Let me, let me see if I can paraphrase it. Okay. Sometime in the 1970s, she disappears into the second attention. She comes back 12 years later, she shows back up and to be in the second attention means you're no longer physically in this world, right? It's like dying, except you you live in the second attention. You live in right. Living. It's like if you're living in uh, New York City and then you move to New Jersey, right? Right. You you're no in longer the second exist. attention yes, for the people yeah. in Manhattan. You no longer exist. You know right. exactly what I'm talking about. I love New Jersey, <laughs> right, but right. if you're as soon yeah. as you leave uh, Manhattan, Brooklyn, yeah. Queens, whatever, yeah. you're yeah. you're you're gone. Yeah, yeah. You don't now, exist anymore. Yeah. Now she, so she disappeared and she shows back up and it's like she somehow got herself out of the second attention and came back. And then investigators who looked into this later. <laughs> she had ADHD. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> they discovered that she had actually gone and like married an acupuncturist in San Francisco, I think, and lived, lived there for a number of years. And then You've when got she it. Came, and when that came out, she was like, well, a sorcerer can be in two places at once. Okay. Yeah. You you have to have simultaneously like a soft spot for these people, yeah. but also just like appreciate that they're fucking clowns. These right. are cl these are like clown people. Sure. And yeah. watch yeah. watching these people age and like being around aged versions of these people. Yeah. Is cringe. Yeah. yeah. It can be very very cringe. Sure. Yeah. 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 Because it's now, because they're they're they've played a kind of Dungeons and Dragons with their own souls. Sure. Yeah. And yeah. there's a there's a point where it becomes it becomes deeply undignified and you know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't think I'm I'm saying anything that's too radical there. No, no, I think um, you're right. Yeah. It can and and they'll I think and the ones who come out okay, and the, and there are many who come out of this okay sure. and come out of it better for this. Sure. We'll we'll also look at the young people and kind of they're they'll warn you. I think yeah. this is why a lot of people get turned off of like psychedelics, for example, mm -hmm. because they do open you up to some yes. really gnarly influences that yeah. can be very dangerous. I and I think yes, you're right, but I do think that like if you're not part of the inner circle, if you're occasionally attend a Castaneda workshop and he says something that sounds pretty wise and you incorporate that in your life and you're like, you know what, that actually is true and that makes my life better and you know I I it fixed some little problem I had that was causing issues. Hey man, great, good for you. Um, you know, we're going to find out what happened to the inner circle and it is dark, but you know, if you, you know, you bought teachings of Don Juan and it spoke to you. Good. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And you could even go off about how Don Juan is real and listen, I'm yeah. open-minded. Yeah. 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 Um, now, so, so we have to imagine this is the, this is the, how I think the story, I think this is what's going on in Castaneda's head. And a lot of this is speculation throughout the eighties. He's building his, he's, he's. 
he's building his circle. He's building his school. He's 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 getting people into his inner circle. He's taking advantage of them. Maybe he's you can call it he's harvesting his energy so he can he can build up his power to live forever. I think that's one way to look at what he's trying to do, right? Now, I think that's yeah. it's freaking crazy. Yeah, like it's yeah, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Now, now something happens in the early 90s and I think what's happening is his fear of death is ramping up. So 1990, he's uh uh, 65 years old, right? And I think he's getting older. And remember, the fourth enemy is old age, right? Um, he's getting older and he returns to the public in a fairly dramatic fashion in the very either 1989 or like 1990. And he returns to the public with something called tensegrity. And what is tensegrity? Okay. Tensegrity is a practice of physical movements, some kind of, uh, like yoga, breathwork, tai chi, falling gong, stretching kind of conglomeration that is intended to, quote, shift one's assemblage point. Now, what is an assemblage point? I think this is actually an interesting concept, this assemblage point concept. Basically, what he's saying is it goes back to this whole like preconceived notion thing, right? Like you establish a perception of what the world actually is. And then you live in that perception, even if it's wrong. And what an assemblage point is, is it's it's a connection between your psyche and the world. So it's like if you have, let's say you have an assumption about the way a person is, uh, somebody in your life, like, you know, you have issues with um, say out there, you have issues with uh, your dad and you you conceive of your dad a specific way. And that's a narrative that causes you issues. Your assemblage point is he's this. But he's not really that. He's more complicated than that, right? He's a full person, right? So what the idea is, is if you can kind of loosen up or break up these assemblage points, you might be able to get over some of your stuff. It's it's not, it's sort of presented in this radical way, but I don't think it's necessarily that bad. It's really just like, can you retell the stories that you have in your head about what your life is, right? I knew that word tensegrity was uh, familiar. It's from Buckminster Fuller. Yeah, Buckminster For, Fuller mm-hmm. sued Buck, uh, the estate of Buckminster Fuller sued the Tensegrity people. <laughs> oh, they had, they still have a website. Yeah, they do. I, I don't think they. I don't think the the. I don't think the lawsuit was successful. Um, now, mostly what how the Tensegrity thing worked. It was workshops, and then they had VHS tapes, which you can watch on YouTube, which is great because oh. the people who the people who do the the Tensegrity workshops, the videos are the Shakmuls, the, the women in part of his inner circle. Um, uh, and the women who led the workshops were Carol Tiggs, uh, Taisha uh, Abelar, who is his oldest witch. She'd been around since the early 60s. And this woman, uh, Florinda Donner, who was born uh, Regina Tall. And these women, like I said, they're sort of mini castanetas. They're sort of executing his ideas and expanding them out further. Um, now, you can literally go on YouTube and watch the Tensegrity VHS, like the old Tensegrity videos. And it's these women who are very attractive, very short hair. Um, they all kind of dressed exactly the same. And they're doing these sort of strange movements, right? Now, let me tell you, I'm going to read you the introduction to the first Tensegrity video. This rocks so hard. Yeah. This is incredible. <laughs> yeah. Quote, Men and women who lived in Mexico in ancient times, whose expertise was to deal with awareness, believed that human beings are the beholders of a most peculiar dualism. They were not referring to traditional dualism, such as body and mind or matter and spirit, but to the dualism between the self and something they called the energy body. 
They considered the self to be a holistic unit, which includes both body and mind, matter and spirit together, and they defined the energy body as a particular conglomerate of energy fields belonging to each of us individually that has the capa uh, capability of being transformed into a perfect replica of the self and vice versa. They believe that the self has the capability of being transformed into a perfect replica of the energy body, that is to say, a conglomerate of sheer energy fields. These men and women of ancient Mexico invented and developed a series of mov movements which helped them to store enough spare energy to accomplish this dual transformation. They handled and transmitted the this knowledge from generation to generation up to the present. The movements you are about to see were called the, quote, 12 basic passes to gather energy. They are part of a vast series of movements which were taught to us the last links of a long chain of such men and women. They were taught especially to Carlos Castaneda by his immediate teacher, Don Juan Mat Matus, and by another practitioner named Lujan. Carlos Castaneda calls it tensegrity, a term he borrowed from architecture. Tensegrity is the property of skeleton structures that employ continuous tension members and discontinuous compression members in such a way that each member operates with the maximum efficiency and economy. We consider this term most appropriate because this system of movements is the quintessence of tensing and relaxing the muscles and tendons of the body. The persons who are going to execute the 12 basic uh, uh, passes to gather energy are Kylie Lindahl, Naya Merez, and Reni Merez. These are the shock mules. The three of them belong to a class of beings that those people of ancient Mexico called Chacmuls or the fierce guardians of energy sites. So the witches are right next to Carlos and then just outside of them are the Chacmuls who run Tensegrity. And then sort of in between them is the blue scout, um, Patricia Parton, who is we're going to talk more about. I am watching this this video. I just put it in the uh, t.me slash art of dark pod telegram chat. Yeah, this is some wacky shit. <laughs> <laughs> they're doing like wacky yeah. moves with their yes. hands it looks like tai chi yeah but kind of well, like like tai chi if it was done by somebody on meth yeah this is the thing Car carlos had had studied to certain degrees karate and kung fu and it seems like he was just borrowing all those concepts and then what's funny is it comes out like i think in the early 90s maybe late 80s the 10 secretary stuff starts but then he also says he learned it from don juan but don juan's been dead for like 18 years so like, right. like why VHS comes before? along. I mean, yeah. you know, they sat like money wasn't working and they he needed yeah. a comeback and he needed something different. And, mm -hmm. you know, they sat and they're in like West L.A. Yeah. yeah. This is what you put out. And right. this this will right. sell. This will yeah. sell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now I'm going to give you a quote from uh, Angela. God, Panero. this rocks. Uh, this, uh, America is the greatest country in the history of yeah. the world yeah. I, that, it, that produces guys like this. And like and, and he can become a legend in his own yeah. lifetime and just yeah. hoover up souls and lives and just leave a trail of carnage and, and sell 28 million copies of his books that are still floating around in used yeah. bookstores. And yeah. tonight, some poor kid on some university campus is picking up one of these books for the first yeah. time yeah. and has no clue, no clue yeah. to the rabbit hole they're going down. Yeah. Now, let me give you a little bit more about Sensegrity from uh, this woman, Angela Panero who uh, ran or maybe still runs Clear Green. So, so at some point in the early 90s, Castaneda formed a company called Clear Green Incorporated, and this was going to sort of handle his legacy. He had looked for successors to the lineage to be the next Nahual, and he had failed, and he decided supposedly to start this company, Clear Green, to sort of manage his legacy, right? Um, 
from Angela Panero of Clear Green Inc. said about Tensegrity, Carlos knew exactly what was true and what was not true. But the thing that's missing when people talk about Carlos is not whether Don Juan lived or not, or who lived in what house. It's about becoming a voyager of awareness, about the six loca- 600 locations in the luminous egg of a man where the assemblage point can shift, about the process of depersonalization that he taught. Okay. Now, Tensegrity, you may have anticipated this, or maybe you did not. Tensegrity is pretty successful. Uh, they would have workshops. They would have seminars where like 800 people would show up sometimes. And they're all paying, obviously. Mostly, it's this is run by the shock mules and the witches. Carlos is showing up in varying capacities. He's not completely hidden from the public eye anymore, but he comes and goes as he pleases. And this is the thing. He was a trickster about this stuff, totally. Like, he would have an event. There is a story about a personal friend of his who happened to be in a city in Mexico and catch wind that there was supposed to be a Carlos Castaneda event. And so he goes to it and then Carlos Castaneda is not there. He doesn't show up. And then this guy sees Carlos Castaneda dressed as a waiter working the staff of the event. And what happened was Carlos didn't speak at the event. He's not officially there. All these people come up and give testimonials about how powerful Carlos Castaneda's work is. And Carlos is dressed up as a waiter standing at the back of the room, listening to all of it. Like he would do very, very strange things. And when we talk about the life of of, uh, Federico Fellini's experience in the after dark, it is bizarre. It is one of the weirdest stories I've ever heard. Um, So, just know Carlos is playing. I- I'm skipping over all kinds of tricks he was playing on people all of the time. Yeah. Um, now, in 1993, he has another book come out called The Art of Dreaming, which is about, well, the art of dreaming. Um, okay. And- that, uh, that's cool. I can get yeah. behind that a little bit. Sure. You just, sure. yeah. If you're yeah. going to go into this stuff, like go into it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Um, now, here is one thing. Remember his son, CJ? who he 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 adopted but he'd had the vasectomy and it was actually another person was the father right cj he had basically completely abandoned margaret runyon and cj and then cj catches wind that there's going to be an event in santa monica and cj is like a teenager now he's like no he's in his 20s now and he sort of they he and margaret his mother go to meet carlos he hasn't seen carlos in years because carlos just like abandoned them at the drop of a hat he just left. This is what mm-hmm. he did. When he was done with people, he was done with them, right? Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you one more story about him doing that to somebody in a second. Um, CJ, they kind of confront him at this bookstore and, and Castaneda's like, oh, my son, where have you been? I've been trying to contact you with all this, blah, 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 blah. And um, which is not true because CJ had been trying to contact him for years. And then he takes CJ's number. He says, we, we're going to we're going to reconnect. This is it's going to be like it used to be. And then Castaneda gets in the van and he never sees him again. Just gone. Mm. He would mm. just walk out of people's lives like he wouldn't even think about it. Now, one of his good friends, this guy, Larry Watson, who Larry Watson was never in the circles or anything. He was just a friend. He'd been a friend since they were undergraduates. Right. He was just a guy he knew that he talked to periodically. One point. Larry caught him in a lie. Larry caught Castaneda in a lie. And he didn't like get aggressive about it. It was just like a a moment happened where Larry knew that Castaneda had lied. And it was about something fairly small, actually. And when Castaneda realized that he'd been caught in this lie, 
that was the last time he ever talked to Larry. It was a friend of like 30 years, 20, 20 years. And one little thing that he got found out on, again, not even something major. I think- It's I think, a narcissistic injury. This is a heavy yeah. duty narcissistic yeah. personality yeah. we're dealing with. I, I think yeah. Carlos- Doesn't mean he's not a genius of some sort. Sure, but, sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I think Carlos had said he was going to do a favor for Larry and then he didn't do it. And instead of being like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I forgot. He like made some story up that was clearly not true. But it was fairly small, like in the grand scheme. Like if you say you're going to do a favor for somebody and you don't, you can literally just be like, oh, dude, I'm sorry, I forgot. It's not that big a deal, right? Um, you, you don't abandon a decades long friendship about it unless you're Carlos Castaneda. Now, let me read you a little bit about um, these, some more about these witches. This is from the Michael, um, Mike Sager book, Shaman. Should interesting short little read. <clears throat> Quote, as the 1990s progressed, Castaneda's contact with old friends continued to become less and less frequent. Though he was by now nearly blind and had to be helped to the stage for lectures, he became increasingly litigious. He had diabetes. Um, lawyers for Clear Green filed suits attempting to block the publications of writings of a woman named Marilyn Tunishend, who called herself the Nahual woman. She asserted she'd also studied with Don Juan, right? In 1995, a suit was initiated by Clear Green's lawyers against an old friend named Victor Sanchez, claiming the jacket of Sanchez's book about Castaneda infringed on Castaneda's copyrights. And in 1997, Clear Green lawyers launched a suit against Margaret Runyon and the publishers of her autobiography, A Magical Journey with Carlos Castaneda. In February 1997, in Long Beach, Castaneda made his appearance, last appearance at a Tensegrity seminar. A spokesman for Toltec Artists, uh, that's another group he had, said Castaneda had decided, quote, the seminars were taking their own course and he did not need to be present. Others had different view of his absence. He was taking medication, losing weight. And one Castaneda watcher said one Castaneda watcher, people were becoming suspicious. If Tensegrity was supposed to lead to health and well-being, why doesn't he look so good? Um, yeah. Okay. Now, uh, as the nineties, mid nineties sort of shade into the late nineties, Castaneda's circle starts shrinking again, again, because his health is deteriorating and he's really gets himself down to the witches and the shock mules and a couple other women, including Amy Wallace and whoever he thought he might be able to bring into the inner circle. Now, here's the thing. There's disputes about, um, later on were the witches in charge or was carlos in charge like at first carlos was certainly in charge but later on some people thought that the witches had sort of taken control of the the thing and that he was sort of under their thumb which you know th these no women one knows were... which is which or who right, is who right, right. To, to quote and, the the great album uh yeah he, yeah and, and people who met the witches would characterize them as like powerful women like like doers. I know, have no doubt happen. they look right. intense in this right. integrity video. They are right. yeah. putting it on. Yeah. And his son, Carlos's son, CJ, his adopted son, what he would say that the witches were controlling his life and that they, they like were deliberately, uh, they wanted him to die so they could take all his money. Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. They wanted That's Carlos to die so they could. Yeah. Now, whoa. That's not the story that you get from insiders. CJ was on the outside, right? Ah, so okay. Um, so from the inside, you know, Carlos is is still kind of doing his things, and he, there are stories too about him just doing terrible things. Like there's supposedly for a while, anyway, the inner circle, the witches. Every morning, he would he would berate them until they broke into tears as a sorceric practice to like strengthen their will. 
right? But it's really, you're just abusing people, right? Like, yeah, we are well into yeah. the realm of the cuckoo crazy. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, he's for a long time in the 90s, in, in the early 90s and into the mid 90s, he's he's they're holding Sunday workshops and it's a group of about 40 people that are kind of coming all the time. Oh, um, they're having they're having church. They're okay. having ch- a church and he yeah. he sort of stops coming to those because he's getting he's getting sicker and sicker. Um and he's caught he's talking more and more about death in these later years. He's talking about something called the golden clasp. He wants to close his life with a golden clasp. And he's talking about the fact that he's going to pass into infinity and he will tell the followers, I'm going to bring you with me. If you follow me, we will all pass on into infinity. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's where I'm like, yeah. ah, yeah. I'm going to the other workshop. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to right. Any yeah. other workshop? Yes, I'm yes, going yes. to church. Right, I right. am because that that gets you to that scary point where it's yeah. like, ah, you will yeah. be buried with me in the great tomb, right? Kind of right. territory, right. right? Yikes! Now, were people were people okay. freaking out? Were they worried, or were they just that's Carlos like being Carlos? People were worried about that group, like people outside yeah. of it. Well, yeah. it was tricky because he's. I mean, sure. I, I think people who had family members who were in it, who were like erasing their personal histories were certainly concerned. But these cult things are weird because, you know, like if you watch the documentary on the Nexium cult or things, it's it's tricky because, all right, you've got this cult leader that's doing some weird stuff, but these are consenting adults participating in it. What's the legal recourse? It's not illegal to have a harem of five women. You know what I mean? Uh, damn right. This is America. <laughs> yeah. Right. Now, if you're trafficking them or what, but like, you, you know, you go to the women and they want to be there. Just like, don't what, cross state lines. Just yeah. Don't. What do you, right. there's, the, there's, there's not much room for like legal interaction. Sure. You're in California, you're consenting yeah. adults and you, you want to come up with some wacky Tai Chi and sell VHS tapes and live in a harem. And right. this is fucking America. Right. right? Exactly. And this guy in Alabama, right. he wants an arsenal of guns. And you know what? Yeah. God damn it. He gets to have those guns. You get to have your harem of witches. Right. Right. It's That's what makes yeah. this country beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> you're right though yeah. that's a good point i mean you know yeah. and and I, nobody says so oh, i'm going to my cult meeting you say i'm going right. to my work my tensegrity workshop right. with and, carlos castaneda right. very cool right okay and there's a there's an interview in the in the trickster podcast with this guy richard jennings who was a, a devotee um he was not part of the industry he was a man so he wasn't part of the inner inner circle but he was coming to these sunday workshops kind of <laughs> so, right up to the no end. man in the inner circle yeah okay no. mm. but he i mean he he said like he said, in some ways, when I was as deep in the Castaneda world as I could be, I was healthier than I'd ever been. Like, I I was fit because I'm doing tensegrity all friggin' day. I'm, um, I figured out who I was, like, actually, like, what I actually wanted. And, and meanwhile, his relationships are falling apart because he's, because this is the other thing. Castaneda would, would give out sometimes arbitrary pieces of like what you needed to do. It wasn't just that you needed to kind of cut off your family. He also would be like, yeah, you shouldn't eat onions. Um, he'd be like, this is how you should decorate your home. You should put, this is the feng shui. You should do your furniture and people would do it. Right. Because he's, this is, I don't know. He's going to make us live forever. And if he says to move my couch to the other side of the room, I, sure whatever um you know all these little subtle pieces of control he would also sometimes make like influence other people to have sex with each other right 
not yeah. just him, but like make you and you need to, right? And that's a whole control thing too, right? It's a, it's you're you're manipulating people, you're making things happen. You and it and, and the other thing too is like let's say there is a couple and you want, you know, the man to sleep with another woman and the woman to sleep with another whatever, even if it's not you, that might be step one in a process of breaking that couple apart to thereby pluck the woman out of it, right? Like he's thinking multiple moves ahead in these manipulations that he's doing. Um, you're playing you're playing checkers. Carlos is playing 4D sexual chess yes, in, totally in West does. LA. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But he's clearly as the 90s progress, he's clearly getting more scared of dying because that seems well, to be his preoccupation, which he would be. He's ill. He um he, there were some stalkers he had that got kicked out of the groups for a while that were they would they would park near his they parked near his house for months on end and they would go Ooh. through his trash. And they yeah, identified that at some point in the mid nineties, there started being like medicine, like bottles and trash showing up. And apparently they were trying every kind of treatment to get medical pharmaceutical treatment to get Carlos healthy again. Just that is the level of fandom. I, I aspire to for art of darkness. I, I, <laughs> I hope me. by the time we're 60 or 70, I yeah. hope people are digging through our yeah. trash. Yeah. Brad. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Can you imagine oh how obsessed God. and insane do you have to be to do that totally for somebody? Nuts. Totally nuts. Nuts. Yeah. Now, eventually, April 27th, 1998, Carlos Castaneda, the official true story in the real world that we can knock our knuckles on, dies from complications due to hepatocellular cancer. There was no public service. He was cremated and his ashes were sent to Mexico. Many adherents would claim that he disappeared in a puff of smoke, that he spontaneously combusted. Carlos would tell people outside the inner circle that he didn't expect to be a physical body when he died, that he was going somewhere else. He was going into infinity. He was closing his life with the golden clasp. Now, two months after his death, the word had gotten out. It had been leaked to the press that he had died. And the New York Times, in the obituary, used the wrong photo they used the photo of another Carlos Castaneda who had nothing to do with him. And this is because there's only a handful of Carlos Castaneda photos out there. He wouldn't allow fo photographs to be taken. him. He's trying to maintain that mystique his whole life. Now, here's the statement that Clear Green made. <clears throat> Carlos Castaneda left the world the same way that his teacher Don Juan Matus did, with full awareness. The cognition of our world of everyday life does not provide for a description of the phenomenon such as this. So in keeping with uh, with the terms of legalities and record keeping that the world of everyday life requires, Carlos Castaneda was declared to have died. Okay. Now here's what, and he was apparently, he was cremated. The same people that went through the trash, like did everything they could to find out exactly what he died. They went to the mortuary. They did all kinds of re like investigations and sneaky stuff to figure out exactly what happens to him. Um, these stalkers. Um, but here's what uh, CJ had to say, his son, Castaneda's son, quote, there's no doubt in my mind that they killed him. The handlers, that's the witches, killed him and they killed him for profit and gain. And in another interview, he said, quote, those people latched onto him, stuck their claws in him and rode him for all he was worth. And then there's this interesting note here. At the time, he said this CJ Castaneda was 37 and it says, uh, CJ Castaneda, who operates two small coffee shops in suburban Atlanta and calls himself a powerful brujo, 
So anyway, um, quote, I don't believe the will. Oh, has Brujo's, my a, Brujo's a witch. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So CJ, his son believed he was a witch too. Uh, quote, I don't believe the will has my father's signature and I don't believe he was competent to sign it three days before he died. The will left nothing to Margaret Runyon and CJ Castaneda. It left everything to the witches. Now, what did his will stip? Well, okay. That's, that's the thing that I just said. Now, this is some karma, man. Yeah. This is wild. Now we're going to talk and that's basically the whole story. In the After Dark, we're going to talk about what were the fate of the witches, and in particular, what was the fate of the Blue Scout, this young woman that was not only Carlos's adopted daughter, he adopted her when she was 40, but he was also clearly sleeping with her. He claimed he met her on the astral plane. Very strange stuff. And then we're going to talk about, we're going to have to, we're going to talk also about what happened to the other witches. Other thing we're going to talk about, what happened to Federico Fellini, the great Italian filmmaker, when he fell into um, Castaneda's sphere. And we're going to talk about the way that Don Juan has seeped into one of the most powerful and long-standing American myths that's going on to this day, being told and retold and expanded, and Don Juan's DNA is at the very core of it. Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. If you don't want to miss this After Dark, yeah. it sounds like Brad's got a serious After Dark prepared yes. for this episode. Yes. Brad, hmm. very nice work. Thanks, man. Yeah. I, I'm torn, man. I... Uh, I want to check out one of these books, but I'm also, I think some of my biases have come across in this episode, but it also seems like he did leave a bit of a trail of carnage behind in, in some of these personal lives. And in the uh, the personal lives, this is where you get in the flim, you get in the flim flammery of the books and it's like, well, okay, you know, it's BS, but eh, you can make an argument. Like it was helpful for people, but then you look at what he did in his personal life and you're like, oh, you're a monster. Well, he, he wouldn't be the first subject we've covered who is like that. I Brando is a good example. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kubrick, Kubrick, to a lesser degree, was difficult to, right. to work with with his collaborators. Right. I, I wouldn't say Kubrick was a monster. No. Uh, from what I've read anyway. Yeah, but, but this is, I think, uh, our only so far like legitimate cult leader. Yeah. Like, you can't, Timmy, can't Timmy even... Leary went around, did a little bit of damage, but yeah. on balance, you know, it's tricky. But this guy, yeah, it's, I mean, he, he started like a little cult and had like women that were calling themselves witches. But it's also super important to sort of like understand LA in the, you know, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. Like, this right. is the, it's kind of the culture out there. Like, right. this is not that far. Have you spent much time out in L.A., Brett? Not in L.A., really, no. Yeah. It's an interesting place. Yeah, and I'm yeah. not saying every every third person out there is part of a group of witches doing right, right. integrity, but you go out there, right. you do notice it's like holistic uh, mm-hmm. workshops. Uh, there, this is a church, but it's a very special loosey-goosey hippie church. And right. then this, and it's right. still right. Like the right. in the water out there. Sure. Yeah, everybody's yeah, doing some, you know, and, and, and it comes into the mainstream through like yoga, Reiki. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, this is just well, kind well, of adjacent well, what you, that. I mean, and, I think mm-hmm. when you when you see these, like yoga is a good example, right? Like something comes across and if there is something valuable and useful, it will spread. And yoga is good. Yeah. People, you know, like, and so sometimes a, a kernel of it that's actually valuable will spread out and it's, it's a, it's a net benefit, you know, in some way. Sure. Um, yeah. I don't doubt that his books have helped a lot of people. It's just, I mean, again, it's selling 28 million copies, copies, there has to be something there 
Right. Uh, right. That. Right. So maybe real quick, just tell me like, what is that? Cause you, I know you've been prepping this episode for yeah. weeks. Like what is that core thing in these books that you yeah. think people, people are getting out of it? I think Carlos for people who it appeals to restored a sense. They, he, met a world that was being demystified by the trends of modernity. He restored magic to it and told you that you could be powerful inside of that magic. And that's a potent message when you look around and you say, oh, all, this is all meaningless bullshit. And yeah. then this guy comes along who poses as a real anthropologist who has the wisdom from the desert. And he says, no, this world is magical, and I'm going to show you how to see that. That's a powerful message, you know? Mm. Yeah, there's some yeah. beauty in that. I mean, mm. and that that will always come back and appeal. I mean, you think about uh, JBP yeah. and his early stuff about the mythic and the mythopoetic and mm-hmm. young men. You know, I'm not talking about the 12 rules stuff, but right. that early stuff. We were talking yeah. about remembering the adventure in life and sort right. of trying to find that. That will always have a, a cyclical appeal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Because there is that. something there is something kind of true to that or it's or it's it's something that we crave. It's it's this whole like, you know, yeah, the call to adventure. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's I think that was a big part of it. Is yeah, you've got this sort of life. Maybe you've lo- it's lost some of its charm, and this guy tells you you can go on a crazy adventure and literally f- learn what's actually happening. Ah! Yeah. yeah, hide your daughters. Ah! Yeah. Yeah. Hide your girlfriends. <laughs> Carlos is coming. Yeah. Right. What do you think he's doing now, Brad? We got to do the closing question. What's he doing now? If he's like, we got a young Carlos Castaneda. Right. Because right. I don't think he can get away with the same. No, I don't, I don't think, think he can get away with the, the flim flam that, now that route, quite the same that, way. That route wouldn't work. I think he would have to, you know, he, well, here's the thing. Would, would, this is one thing I found interesting. He's a Peruvian. And yet there's never any mention of ayahuasca and he didn't seem to even be aware of it really. And, and ayahuasca, the traditional ayahuasca usage is in Peru. And I think he may have found himself. I don't know that he ever actually did any psychedelic drugs, to be honest with you. And I think he might have found himself actually having to go through and do it and like hold, you know, ceremonies and and going more of that route um what that would have led to i i don't know but he wouldn't i don't think he would have gotten away with writing a this is a you know this is a book of anthropology i don't think that would have i don't think he would have managed to pull that off now yeah maybe he would write novels and he'd have to become a better stylist and maybe find an editor who could shape it he strikes me as somebody who would have been early in burning man yeah, like if he yeah. was really active in the arts, yeah. and the, <laughs> that's you know, true. Yeah. He strikes me as a Burning Man type guy. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah, and I don't want to seem uh, like I'm not like we're not generous for the people that we cover. We try to yeah. be generous to people, but when yeah. we encounter somebody who's really difficult or tricky, it's like it's hard not to call out, especially this cult stuff. When it turns yeah. into a cult, um, it gets it can get really heavy. It yeah. gets it, it gets. Uh, problematic yeah. as well i say. think i think the interesting thing about looking at cults or this has always been the interesting thing to me about it is the cult, any cult like thing always has some kernel of truth it always has something in there that is sort of true or valuable or or would be helpful if you wielded it in the right way 
And what's always interesting to me about that is sort of like, it's always a warning about how carefully to hold on to concepts. You know, it's like, because just because you think Carlos um, shared some wisdom about thing A doesn't mean you have to follow him to point B or point C or point D. You can just take that and be like, yeah, that's an interesting point. Like stopping the yeah. world. That's interesting. I should shut down the internal. There's a point, and, and this is the tricky thing inside of all this guru stuff. And it's not just in guru stuff; it's in organized yeah. religion too, where sure. you're you sort of are you have to surrender your will mm-hmm. to the the shaman, to the guru, and then they got you. If they're right. malicious, if they're bad actors, right, right, they got you. And so you have to sort of yeah. pick wisely and pick your moments, and, right. But 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 there is like this thing. I mean, all of the traditions do kind of require you to give up, right? And if mm-hmm. you give up, and then the per, the thing that the hands that you're in when you give up don't have your best your best interests in mind, you're fucked. It's you it's a very careful. delicate balance, yeah. And it yeah. sounds like this guy did a lot of good for a lot of people too. So I don't yeah. want to write that off. Right. If you're a Castaneda right. stan, we yeah. we do. We want to hear from you. I you know yeah. uh, Brad has the Twitter. I have the Patreon. We're yeah. in Telegram. It's all at Art of Dark Pod. And uh, I you know I have no doubt this guy has helped a lot of people too with his ideas and and all the rest of it. Sure. Just yeah. a tricky kind of trickstery, tricky guy. Yeah. Uh, and boy, that was a lot of fun, Brad. Good work. I've got <laughs> Thanks, Dante. Man. Coming yeah. down the pike, yeah, gonna be good. I'm gonna yeah. be ready. We're gonna drop that uh, tomorrow. Yeah. So thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to our patrons. We're gonna do more after dark stuff. Hit me again with what we're doing for uh, Patreon.com/slash Art of Dark Pod on the After Dark. Brad, what do we got? We're talking about Federico Fellini's experience with Castaneda. We're talking about what happens to the Blue Scout and the witches after Castaneda died, and we're gonna talk about the influence of Castaneda on. I'll just give it to you right now. Star Wars, the biggest American myth. DNA, Carlos Castaneda, Don Juan are right there in Star Wars. And we're going to go through why and how and show you why. And I just said why twice, but yeah. (laughs) See you there. Yeah. Good work, Brad. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan.